following podcast is brought to you by Robots vs. Dinosaurs. Disclaimer, this podcast is about to spoil several movies from 6 to 20 years old. Lou, read off the list. Today, Robots vs. Dinosaurs will be spoiling for you, the listener, Game of Thrones, Ted Lasso, The Flintstones, Young Frankenstein, WandaVision, Doctor Strange, and the Multiverse of Madness, Arrested Development, Rocky, Predator, Happy Gilmore, Halo, ODST, Spider-Man, Into the Spider-Verse, Super Mario Brothers, Jumanji, and Nacho Libre. Hello and welcome to Robots vs. Dinosaurs, the podcast where we watch a movie. Or a TV show. And then try to determine which one is cooler, robots, dinosaurs, or a former Gungan-churned-Jedi hero. Mm. I'm your host, Louis G, and with me as always is my intrepid co-host, returning back from more Mandalorian coverage, Evan Norris. Welcome back to the show, Evan. Great to be back. Can't wait to dive into the middle part of this season. That's right. Why don't you tell the listeners which episodes we're talking about today? So we are talking about season three, episodes four, five, and six. These are the middle part of an eight-episode eight, uh, season. And uh, this really will get into the heart of this season and the setup for the climactic finale. Heck Yeah. This um this also this chunk contains my absolute number one favorite episode of The Mandalorian so far. Um I think you know right. which one I'm talking about. I do know, and I'm really excited to hear your thoughts on it. Yeah. Uh so one, um, two, two very small things that we kind of brought these up last last episode, but um uh so one was we were talking about the pilot. And things that like connect or throughout the rest of the series or things that they sort of like set up that have payoffs later. Um, one of those that I forgot to mention was uh, that first guy that he goes after in, in the pilot episode. Um, and he, you know, brings him in and, and, and ends up putting him into um, Carbonite. Uh, the guy was like trying to appeal to him to the Mando by telling him, I have kids, you know, I have a family. So I think he says something about like, Oh, you know, I was hoping to get back and see them for life day. Um, and Mando just doesn't care. He's absolutely impassive about that. And I think that's like, that sets up the, the journey of that character so much because now, like, I mean, we're going to get to the finale later where he officially adopts Grogu, but we've seen so much of him like gradually caring more and more about this small ch- child and this innocent life. And um, it hasn't made him a completely different person, but I'd say in a lot of ways it's, he's softened. He's, he's like more of a dad, you know? For sure. And given him a purpose, you know, I remember that scene in the pilot, he's sitting at the bar with grief cargo, grief cargo 1.0 before he became <laughs> high magistrate. And he says something like, or he, he, he offers to take all of the fobs, yep. you know, there are like five or six of these. I'll just take them all. And grief, is reluctant because he wants to spread the wealth around. But that says it all. This His life is devoted to taking these bounties, earning money for the covert, for his people. But it's this narrow, single-minded purpose. And with the addition of Grogu, his world has, has broadened, his horizon has broadened, and he has just a greater purpose. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I am here for his evolution for sure. Yeah, even back then, he cared about, like, 
children in an abstract way. Like when he delivers his first piece of Beskar to the armorer, she says, you know, this will make armor for many foundlings. And he says, this is the way. And like, he's obviously like, that's the point. That's why he's doing this bounty hunting. That's the reason he's raising money uh, is to support the covert, specifically the next generation of Mandalorians, foundlings. But it's it's not really personal for him until um, he and Grogu really grow close. Do you think there, if, if Mando at the end of season three um, picked up the same bounty and that guy was like, I have kids, come on. Do you think that that would, would go any differently? That's interesting. Well, there is a certain, he, he is honor bound to that contract. Yeah. <laughs> so part of, so I think ultimately no, but maybe he wouldn't take the contract in the first place. Mm. Maybe he'd be more. Um, that may, That's probably the right answer that he, he would just pass it off to somebody else. I think so. Although that I am looking forward to talking about the ending of this season. Well, we shouldn't get ahead of ourselves, but yeah, the, yeah, the yeah. final shot of the final episode does say a lot. So, well, I'll, we'll look forward to talking about that. Yeah. Um, the other thing is I got so wrapped up in talking about uh, the the Dianoga, cyborg <laughs> Dianoga theory uh, that I forgot. the um, While I was doing that research and trying to figure out, like, what is this thing? What's it doing? What are those tubes that it's plugging into Mando? What's the, the liquid that it's extracting out of him? Is it blood? Um, and I found this interesting Wikipedia article that I'm going to link uh, in the show notes. So, listeners, you can check that out. Um, so this is about something in Star Wars called entechment. And entechment is a process by which a being's life energy is drained from its body to be used as a power source for a machine. Uh, it was developed by a, um, a really interesting Star Wars race that I've, I think only exists in like the Legends canon, like the expanded, the former, formerly known as the expanded universe. Uh, they're called the, I'm probably pronouncing this wrong, the Seerook, the Cyrook. And they're basically sentient dinosaurs. And they power their ships, they power their technology by uh, capturing sentient beings and basically plugging them into these tubes that drain them of their life source. And they, I mean, it's like the Matrix. They like drain their life mm. source and use it to as a battery. They're literally a living battery. Um so I don't know. Do you think like I, some part of me thinks Dave Filoni and John Favreau are probably very well aware of this and like whatever story that it came from. And, you know, I don't think it's like major important story point, um, but I do think it's a nice nod to that. I, I think that's what the Cyborg Dianoga was doing to Mando. That was a great discovery. I remember you shared that with me via text when we were chatting about these episodes. I think that's right on. It sounds it sounds right on the money. And I'm so glad you found it because it, when you sent me that message about the Cyrook, I never learned how to properly pronounce it. That was just it, how I internalized it. But mm -hmm. you sent me right back to middle school, 1995. There was an expanded universe book called The Truce at Bakura, which I highly recommend to any Star Wars fan out there. It takes mm -hmm. place, I want to say days within the Battle of Endor and the destruction of the second Death Star. And oh, the, cool. whole pre the whole premise is the Cyrook have invaded the Outer Rim and the Imperial Remnants and the Rebels have to join forces to fight them off. It's that deadly of 
an, an opponent. Really fascinating. And so I'm so glad you found that it was like a, it was like a time capsule for me. Yeah. And, and I think you're right on and Techman is right. And Fel- yeah, you're right. Filoni and Favreau have proven themselves to be thoughtful students of star Wars lore. Mm-hmm. And you will see it in these three episodes. There are allusions to the separatists. There are allusions to stuff we see in the original trilogy. And this is peppered throughout the whole season. Mm. Do you, is the, uh, the way you describe the whole Seeru thing, is that kind of like the, the Yuzen Vogue, right? That was another similar situation oh, yeah. where they were such a big threat that, um, the empire, the former empire and the rebels had to like fight against them together. Um, it's in, you know, I, I'm grateful for some things Disney has done to the star Wars franchise, the Mandalorian first and foremost, but part of me wishes we could see some of those expanded universe stories on film or on TV. There was just some really cool stories there that were released in novel form after the original trilogy. The problem with all of them is that many of them contradicted the others. George Lucas had a very liberal policy about approving multimedia with the star Wars license. And so it didn't always make sense together. I know now it's all been relegated to non-canon and is it legends? They call it legends. Yeah. It's still worth reading some of those old books. Uh, Yeah. Tales from Jabba's palace, stuff like that. A lot of fun. Yeah. Uh, I wonder, because we're getting an episode 10, so I wonder if um, they're going to go in some sort of crazy direction like that. Who knows? Um, All right. So uh, let's dig into uh, chapter 20. This is um, season three, episode four, The Foundling. Uh, This episode starts with, we see some... Um, we see some Mandalorians training with like vibro blades. A lot of them are just like shooting at the water angrily uh, <laughs> and just throwing bombs and watching them explode. Grogu is kind of off by himself, surrounded by these like rock hermit crab things. Yeah. And he's um, like meditating and he's like playing with these rocks or whatever. And uh, uh, Din comes over and he says, all right, playtime's over. Um, you need you need some practice and you need training if you're going to rise from foundling to apprentice. And he brings him, he brings him over to where Ragnar Ragnar Vizsla has just defeated uh, an opponent in a sparring match, and he says, uh, "I got the next contender right here." Yep. And everybody simultaneously, myself included, like takes one look at the situation and is like, "You're you're putting you're putting a baby." literal baby (laughs) a fighter um but he's like yep like he has no doubts about it whatsoever he's just like yeah no he's the next contender um (laughs) i yeah the uh i love that whole the whole opening with grogu almost there's the scene when grogu gets up when when dinjarin pulls him away to enter the training exercise mm-hmm. and all of the hermit crabs suddenly get up and, and kind of mosey away. And I was wondering, were they all drawn to Grogu because of his force sensitivity or something like that? That That's the kind of vibe I got. It was just a small little moment, but just cute that these life forms were drawn to this child. Mm-hmm. And um, I wanted to ask you about the training because I, I do appreciate a glimpse into the martial preparation that the Mandalorians do. It seemed a little unorganized, which yeah. was right, which was strange to me because they were like they were all very 
kind of huddled close together, all doing their own thing. I was skeptical, skeptical, pardon me, about all the ammunition they have in that cave on this mm-hmm. deserted planet, like enough to just shoot it into the, into the waters. But it is cool to see them training, which makes sense. They pride themselves, pride themselves on their, their abilities in battle. So, but the best is yet to come, which is the fight itself. Yes. Yeah, so, um, they, uh, Rag, uh, Ragnar immediately is like, um, he's too small and he's, and therefore too young to fight. And, uh, they tell him that he's, well, they tell him that he asks, why is he not, why is he not wearing a helmet? And they say he's too young to speak the creed and so too young to wear a helmet. And Ragnar says, well, then he's too young to fight. Mm-hmm. And just tells him one does not speak unless one knows. Love it. Um, then they, they say like, he gets to choose what weapon they fight with. And he says blasters and they take out these like wrist rocket things that immediately I was like, how do they even have one small enough for, for this is kind of like when they, um, didn't they have like baby handcuffs in season two when they were like, had him in prison. Didn't they put him in like tiny little <laughs> baby handcuffs? Like who is making handcuffs that are the size of a baby baby's arms or a wrist rocket. But I don't know. Maybe there's like, maybe it was made by Anzellans. Maybe they have like, you know, like maybe that. they've designed. Yeah. Some, well, something that you've talked about in our last episode, when we're talking about single use droids, mm-hmm. there's clearly a huge marketplace in the Star Wars universe for very specific, peculiar operations. Mm-hmm. Like we want a droid that only flushes the toilet. We want <laughs> handcuffs that only fit on an Anzellan. Like, and there's a marketplace for this somehow. So I, I don't even doubt it anymore. <laughs> Oh man. So it's uh first first to three wins, they get three shots. Um Ragnar just the the kid doesn't even know. Bo comments on this. He um Grogu doesn't even know how to fire the blaster. Yeah. Uh and she's like, Are you sure it's gonna be okay? <laughs> uh, and he's just like, Yeah, no, no, no. I they watch and watch and see. Um and so Ragnar just unceremoniously like points his thing, shoots him. Round one's over, points his thing again, shoots him. And then Din is like, has like a father-son talk and he's like coaching him. He's like, don't look at me, look at him. Uh, I, I've seen what you can do, show them what you can do. And he just does like a Jedi flip over him and then back. And then I thought this was cheating, but apparently it's not against the rules. He just fires all three shots at the same time. Yes, definitely within the rules based on the the Arbiter, the, the, the Mando who started the match. Mm-hmm. I was... Um, it was actually on uh, Rag- Ragnar. Mm-hmm. It's actually on Ragnar for, for for him not shooting three in a row because he could have ended it early. So um, it's true. So Grogu was well within his right, but um, I don't know. There are many scenes in this season in this series that melt my heart, but this was one of them. I mean, mm-hmm. Grogu. It has a very let let me know if you agree. It has this very dad bringing his son to little league practice yeah and being like go for it like hit the ball kind of the vibe. don't look the don't look at me look at yeah. him thing was like the word for word yeah i just that i love and then one thing i especially love a little glimpse into the mando mythology the the one does not speak unless one knows clearly mm. kind of a maxim for them and and then Ragnar, being young and naive and inexperienced and a bit brash, says something like, oh, I'll, I'll, he, he can't put up a fight. 
And Mando says to him, Din Djarin says to him, perhaps this lesson is for you then. Yeah. And I'm just like, oh, Din Djarin, you are the man. <laughs> and pause again. Like we talked about this last time, like the mask acting, like mm. they cut to pause. And I don't know, maybe you had a different interpretation, but when they cut to him, I'm like, oh, he's not disagreeing at all. He's like, like, he's not upset that like, that's my kid or like getting defensive about it. He's just like, yeah, no, that's, I mean, that's a very I, good point. <laughs> yeah. Paz is definitely, he's loyal to the creed for sure. Mm-hmm. And I, I got that same idea. Although Lou, I would love, once we get to, I think the end of this episode, I mistook not having a facial framework, just having the mask. I actually mistook something with the armorer, really uh, mis- misinterpreted something. So I, well, we'll get there, but uh, okay. yeah. It'll I gotta say, if, if I'm Ragnar in this fight, I'm probably gonna lose exactly the same way because yes, I, yeah, he does. The, the judge does say like, you can fire these bolts in any order. So I guess it's definitely not against the rules. You can shoot them all at the same time. But if I'm Ragnar, I'm not, I'm not going all out on a baby yeah. with a blaster, like poo, poo, poo. <laughs> um, you know, uh, and, and my underestimating that baby would get me killed. So yeah. there we are. There we are. Um, so he wins. Um, Ragnar kind of like goes to the water's edge uh, to sulk about it <laughs> and instantly gets scooped up by a pterodactyl monster. Um, four Mandos immediately uh, chase him. I think uh, it's Din, Paz, and two others that we don't know their names. Um, so maybe somebody does. Listeners, if you know their names, robosvdinos at gmail.com. They basically chase the pterodactyl monster until they're out of fuel. Um, and then Bo also, like, Bo gets in her, her ship and follows, so she's actually able to see where it went. Um, and then they cut back to the armorer, who is basically telling, like, Grogu, they're, you know, the adults are going, you can't go with them. Um, and she brings him into the forge to show him the forge, and she says uh, this really cool speech about, like, as we shape the Mandalorian steel, we shape ourselves. The forge can reveal weaknesses. And this hammer thing is going down and um, Grogu's shell-shocked face as he's having a flashback. And then we see his flashback uh, in the Jedi Temple right after Order 66 goes down. Um, And a bunch of uh, clone troopers, are well, a bunch of Jedi are trying to defend Grogu and get him to an elevator. They get taken down by these clone troopers. Uh, they get him into the elevator. It goes up, and on the other side of the door is the best Ahmed <laughs> Best. Uh, this is Kelleran Beck, a Jedi that, uh, a new Jedi, a new badass Jedi that allegedly survived Order 66. He gets on a speeder bike um, that has like a little sidecar for Grogu's little bubble thing. Yeah. Uh, and they have a really cool, really cool chase through uh, Coruscant. And he is trying to get to this platform where there's a bunch of, um, I think that these guys, if I remember my action figures from the prequel era correctly, these are Republic commandos. The guys in yeah. the brown. Yeah, they looked like, with the Naboo cruiser and their gear, they looked like maybe some representatives from Naboo. I don't know. Oh yeah. That's what it was. They're Naboo, like Royal Naboo guards. I think so. Yeah. 
I don't that know. I'll a, have to like dig out my uh, Pepsi cans from 1998 to see if I have one of those. <laughs> I still have one of those. I think it might have a battle droid on it or Queen Amidala or something. Nice. Um, yeah. So this whole scene was very interesting. It's always cool to peel back a layer and see a little bit more about Order 66, which in episode three itself was felt a little clumsy, but the way Obi-Wan treated it and now the way Mando treats it, it's, it's, I'm warming up to the whole thing. This was hard to watch in part because I just don't like seeing Grogu in peril. Well, he, Mm -hmm. it was more, it was more his, the puppetry on Grogu is amazing, but his scared face in, in the present thinking back on it, it Mm -hmm. was hard to, hard to watch, but it was cool to see Kelleran Beck. I'm sure you did some digging after that. I did too. Apparently, Kelleran Beck was introduced in a web series like a decade ago. No way. Um, I didn't yes. know this. And on a children's game show called Jedi Temple Challenge. I kid you not. It's all on YouTube. I watched the first episode yesterday. It's very much for kids. It's like a three groups of two kids with these Jedi challenges, like, you know, going over a rope bridge, a physical challenge, uh, recalling a, the specifics of a story, a mental challenge, that kind of thing. But I believe that's where Kelleran Beck was introduced as a Jedi, played by Ahmed Best, who we all know as that infamous, the most infamous of Star Wars characters, Jar Jar Binks. <laughs> so when I saw him, I knew it was Ahmed Best, but I didn't know who Kelleran Beck was. I'm sure folks who knew of the game show, they their their face their faces lit up when they saw him. But just cool to to meet a new Jedi to get a little infusion something new into the mythology and uh and it was just a great scene you're right with the armorer doing that voiceover oh by the way lou i read a message it was a post on twitter or facebook or something saying that the armorer's voice is the best star wars voice since james earl jones and i can't argue with that i think that's Mm -hmm. right that voice is killer it, it's a top contender. It's, yeah. it's, it's perfect. There's nothing I would change about it. Yeah. Emily Swallow, for those listening, who I believe cut her teeth in Supernatural, she is the voice of oh, the armor. Okay. And her, oh, it's just this like deep, uh, serious, intimidating voice. I just, I can't get enough of it. But yeah, her, her narrating the whole thing, the metaphor of the steel and the Mandalorian, and then that whole flashback, uh, I, I, was re- I was pretty gripped in this first part of this episode. Yeah. Yeah. She, um, she ends up making a, uh, rondelle for mm-hmm. Grogu and it has the symbol of the Mudhorn, which is that, um, the same symbol that, that Din Djarin has. It's the, the beast that was, uh, probably going to kill him. Like, as, you know, as we discussed last time when he's up against yes. the four legged creature, um, he needs, he needs help. But, um, yeah, didn't we see Grogu like fully lift this rhinoceros creature off the off the ground? Like he was that strong with the force that he fully levitated this thing? Yeah, it stopped it in its tracks. I think that was the first time in season one we see him deploy the force. Mm-hmm. And oh, that was a magical moment. It's hard to believe that was three seasons ago. I know, right? But um, uh, yeah. So he gets this uh, rondelle. It's his first, or well, no, it's his second piece of armor because he has the chain, chain best mail, chain mail. <laughs> um, and now he has got like a, basically a, a chest plate in front of it. Um, I which know I love. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Uh, I was just gonna say I know we've talked about this offline, but 
I think we're both just biding our time until some future season where Grogu just walk, steps out of a cave or a doorway and he's just in the full Mando gear with like holes cut for his ears. Right? I spend so much time thinking about what his helmet would look like. I really, yeah, I really, I need to know, are they going to have like a metal covering for the ears or are they going to have holes cut out so the ears just naturally stick out of it? That's a really good question. I hadn't thought about metal coverings. The, yeah, I just, I can't wait to see him yeah. stepping around in that jetpack, man. <laughs> yeah. I also, I just love the fact that the rondelle is like, it covers his whole entire chest, but like it would be a shoulder pauldron for like one side of somebody's arm of somebody else's armor. It's comically huge on him. Mm-hmm. Um, Keller and Beck, do you think, uh, do you think he's going to come back in this show or like next season or in like the Ahsoka show maybe? Oh, Ahsoka, maybe I'm excited for that. I do hope so. I, I, as soon as they left that flashback, I immediately wanted to see that like them finding a place of safety and Keller and taking care of him, feeding him. I just, I want to see how this all played. I want to see mm-hmm. the, how Grogu got from Coruscant to that, to that pirate base that where we meet him in the, in the first episode. In three seasons, they've, unless I'm mistaken, they've never explained that. No. Like, I don't even, I don't even know. I'm not even hundred percent sure. Like who the bounty came from that, like to find him. And well, no, it was Werner Herzog, but that's right. But still, like, how did he end up captured how did he even by these know pirates? About like, yeah. how did he know about him? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I hope they fill in that kind of stuff next season. Um, so they, all right, so the Mandos, uh, they, they, Bo comes back, tells them where, where the location of the raptor is, the raptor pterodactyl. Uh, she calls it a raptor, which is a cool name. Um, and they all pile in and... Uh, well, no, I'm sorry. They 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 decide like they can only get so close to it, um, and then they're going to have to climb because if they use their jetpacks, it'll make too much noise, and they can't use their blasters either because apparently this has happened before, and every single time the child gets eaten or whichever you know kidnapped Mandalorian gets eaten once they show up and do violence to the raptor. Um, so they've kind of got like a puzzle to solve with how they're going to save this kid. Um, and then they camp out under a ridge, and this is some culty nonsense where <laughs> uh, Bo is like, well, how do we eat um, if we can't take off our masks? And they're like, well, you are the leader of the war party, so you have the honor of staying by the fire, uh, but the rest of us take our little ration box, and everybody goes off in a separate direction, and then we eat it, and then we all come back to the fire. I, I, what bummed me mo- out most about that was that you and I have played a lot of video games. We've watched a lot of movies, watched a lot of TV. W- when does the best character interaction happen? Around campfire. a campfire. So mm-hmm. like, I was really, oh, I saw the campfire. I'm like, oh, they're going to talk to Bo-Katan. She's going to talk about her past. They're going to all bond together. Maybe we'll learn the name and the background of one of these red shirt Mandos. And then they gave us a gl- another glimpse into the kind of the culture of the Mandalorians with this whole tradition. But then it just cut to mourning. I was like, oh, this is like, give, I just let the show just relax and rest a bit and give us like five minutes of just these people talking. That I really seems like a missed opportunity. It wasn't a huge oversight, but it felt like a missed opportunity. I agree. I agree. 
I also, I think it's impractical to, uh, if you're trying to be as quiet as possible and <laughs> stealthy as possible to have everybody spread out in opposite directions. Also, like, why have a campfire in the first place? <laughs> That's a great point. Yeah, I, I've been thinking, I've been thinking a lot about the, the, the armor and the masks and I know it's a rule and everything, but I'm just, there are like small little interactions like that, where it's like, how do you live? Like how it, it's a huge inconvenience. Um, what if like two Mandalorians wanted to, you know, hook up, you know, wanted to, I don't I know how that the helmet stays on, I guess. I guess so. <laughs> um, yeah, it's just it's little things like eating and, and romantic stuff. It's interesting. It might be, it might be a thing where he might've been less, um, less reverent to the, to the code, uh, in, in, in the past, but we've definitely seen Mando like out in public eating soup by just sort of like lifting his helmet, lifting the bottom of his helmet yep. and like taking a sip and then putting it back down. Like he, he did that in season one, I think. Um, so I don't know why they can't just do that, but who knows? Yeah. <laughs> who can explain cult rules? <clears throat> Excuse me. So they, um, they all, uh, there's a really cool climbing scene where they're using like a combination of just free climbing and like also shooting their grappling lines yeah. up. And um, they uh, get to the top and uh, there are three baby raptors up there and uh, Paz gets attacked by them. They're huge. The baby and the babies are enormous. There's a lot of like scattered Mandalorian helmets in this nest, uh, which is really ominous. And then the mama raptor comes back um, and apparently has fully swallowed Rackar because she basically like hook, hook and then dumps him, <laughs> dumps him out so that her babies can eat him. And that's when uh, Paz runs forward, loses all sense of strategy. Um, and Bo is like, no, you know, we got to, you know, whatever. And he's like, he's my son. Yeah, there's a cool chase. Bo loses a, a shoulder pauldron. Yep. Uh, they fire nets at it and like tie up its wings and they manage to take it down and drop it in the water. And it's eaten by our friend, the dinosaur turtle. Yeah. This felt, felt a little bit like a nod to episode one, the Phantom Menace. There's always a bigger fish kind of thing. Mm -hmm. that, that was a, yeah, that, that whole battle was really tense and well-filmed. Uh, yeah. I, uh, good action in this episode. Mm-hmm. Um, also, do you know who this episode was directed by? I did see that at the end. It was Carl Weathers, right? Yeah, that's right. I think he did a good job. I, it's, yeah. inter it's interesting. And I know two episodes, episodes from now, we have another actor turned director who, mm -hmm. who helms an episode. But in general, I think most of the, most of the folks who get behind the, who, who filled the director's seat on this show, they do pretty well. Mm hmm. I, I totally agree. Um, the they get back the Mandos get back with Ragnar and um, two things. One, did you notice that when uh, the, the other Mandalorians um, are waiting when they when they all come back and they're like, yay, we saved it. We saved Ragnar. The way that they're applauding. Did you notice that they're like clanking their forearms together? Yeah. Yeah, I, I did notice that. That's a cool uh a cool little gesture. I imagine that's, you know, they've got the armor on their forearms. So maybe that's a Mandalorian thing. Yeah. 
Um, and then they say that we have uh, we have three more foundlings in need of care and training. And they open up the cargo hatch of the gauntlet and outstep the three baby raptors. Um, yeah. If we if we don't, so I was incredibly disappointed that this is the last time, at least in this season, mm-hmm. we see the three raptors. If we don't get more of those raptors in the next season, I will riot. <laughs> like if if we don't show them being trained and ultimately like if there isn't a scene in episode in in like season five or six where there are Mandalorians riding on fully grown raptors that are now loyal to them, mm-hmm. what what are we doing this for? <laughs> <laughs> um, then uh, Bo uh, Paz comes and is like the armor needs to see you, yep. and so Bo goes with him and they. Um, she says, uh, here, I'm going to, I'm going to replace your pauldron for you. Um, what do you want on it? What come, what, what do you, what do you want on your tombstone? And she, uh, <laughs> and she says, uh, would it be okay to have a mythosaur? And the armor says like, oh yeah, the mythosaur belongs to all of us. So, you know, you don't have to do anything specific to earn it or whatever. Um, and she tells her that she saw the mythosaur and, the armorer says, well, when you walk the way of Mandalore, you will see many things. And Bo is like, yeah, but it was real. And her response, and this this is where I, I agree with you so hard about, like, she, this might be the best voice acting in all of Star Wars. Just this line. And it's a line we've heard a hundred times. But it's just the way she responds to Bo telling her that. It's just, this is the way. Like, she's neither agreeing nor disagreeing. She's not saying, like, you imagined it. Like that wasn't real. You just, you know, you had a hallucination. She's just like, yeah, this is the way. Yeah. I, I also observed that I, I made a note of the way she says that it's just so there's so much in that, mm-hmm. that freight, the, the, the tone of it. So, but this is the scene Lou, where I read everything wrong. So mm. I really thought, and maybe it was cause I was searching for conflict or because I knew of all this animosity between the 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 Death Watch and the the Night Owls, right? Mm-hmm. Night Owls. I thought at this moment, I thought the 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 um the confession from Bo Katan that she saw the Mythosaur, like I thought it like scared the armor in a way that like oh like she is a a threat or a risk or something like that. And I thought Ah. that revelation was going to like, I thought the armor might betray her or something. So again, when you don't, when you just have a mask and Mm -hmm. you project your own baggage onto it, you can misinterpret. So after this episode, I was like, Oh, when is the armor going to like make her move? And then she never did, of course. Um, But I was also kind of disappointed that she never did. I kind of was looking for some more, at the end of this season, there's a lot of like everyone's all the mandos are holding hands underneath a <laughs> a, a rainbow. <laughs> but I kind of wanted some betrayal or some backstabbing. Um, but anyway, that's how I totally misread the situation at the end of this episode. We're gonna we're gonna unpack that a little bit more in the in the coming up episodes yep. and in and in when we talk about the two part finale because I definitely think you're you're not wrong for interpreting it that way. Okay. I really think they were um, playing with our expectations a lot this season because it's it's that then um, uh, Captain Car- uh, Captain Tiva finds the 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 Beskar 
you know, scoring on the wall, right? Uh, and where they broke out Moff Gideon. Uh, and then the very like the this the episode after is called The Spies. So I really think they were setting us up to think like somebody in this co- covert or maybe one of uh, Bo's people, one of the night owls is the the titular spy or like betrayed everybody. And that's why they found the best car. And it turns out to be something else entirely. But I really think they were playing with audience expectations with that. There was a really popular uh, theory being bandied about on message boards about the armor being um, an undercover like uh, traitor and like working for Moff Gideon. And I got really close to believing it too. <laughs> well, there's, there's, a, I don't want to get ahead of ourselves, but just so I don't forget it to mention it, there's a scene, I guess, toward the end of the penultimate episode, the spies, which mm-hmm. was my favorite uh, of the season. And it's when the armor, I think she takes some of the Mandos and um, gets in a ship and goes back to the like yes. the mothership. And I'm like, and then they just like, they cut away from her. Yep. And I'm like, is she, like when we get back to the mothership, is it going to be like, are all the Mando's going to be dead? And she ha- she's standing over them. Again, my own baggage. But yeah, so I very much thought something was going to go wrong. And then everything went right. You're not alone in that. Okay. You're definitely not alone in that. A lot of people felt the same way. Um, that's everything I have for the foundling. Uh, do you have anything else before we move on to the next episode? I think, no, we, we covered everything. I'm ready for episode five. Episode five, chapter 21, The Pirate. This is hands down my favorite episode of, of any Star Wars television show that they've put out so far. Um, this had everything that I could ask for. I love pirates in general, space pirates even more. I love the fact that... Uh, uh, Gorian Shard, the pirate captain, his entire crew is like all of the weirdest looking aliens that you've seen (laughs) since the cantina in episode four. Like, it's just a collection of these diverse, awesome looking uh, dudes in like rubber suits and rubber masks. And and it just everything about it works so well. Um, This episode is directed by Peter Ramsey. And actually, I forgot to look up like if he has anything else that I would recognize. Let me just do a quick check on that. I think he's got some background in other TV shows, maybe writing and directing. Oh, well, here's one. Um, Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. I think he did a pretty oh. decent job with that. <laughs> that is maybe, I mean, that's to me like a top 10 superhero movie of all time. Yep. Uh, wow. Okay. I'm glad I looked that up because that is, that that alone, like, yeah, that's this guy knows his stuff. Um because it wasn't just like thematically I loved it. It was it, the directing, the music, the performances were so good. Um, one little note about the music. Did you notice when they get to the like Mandalorian theme? It's like a like almost like a sea chant, like an accordion. Um, I missed that. And th- yeah, go back and like just listen to that brief like uh, when they do like the Mandalorian. Um, it's it sounds like uh, I think accordion is the right instrument. But it has like it's like a pirate themed version of the theme song. Oh, I love that. Mm-hmm. Um, this episode starts with Grief Karga uh, talking about uh, he's talking to his people about we got to move the training the trading district closer to the shipping terminals and um, his protocol droid is like. By the way, I looked up this protocol droid because of the fact that it like slant you know killed IG Eleven with with a 
statue. Uh, it doesn't have a name. There's oh. so many things. Yeah, so many things this season that I, I was expecting Wikipedia to have already like told me the name of it and, and its entire background. But um, this one is just referred to as um, Copper Protocol Droid. <laughs> That's strange because, you know, Star Wars has made a living um, by giving minor unremarkable characters not only names but races and jobs and backstories i mm-hmm. i mean ev- like every single character who has a split second on screen in the cantina in episode four has a story so yep. copper droid needs a name yeah it's weird um but he says oh you know great job magistrate and he's like hi magistrate grief carga um then we see gordian uh Gorian Shard's Corsair, which also doesn't have a name. I was very disappointed about that. I really like the design of that ship with like the hook at the front. Mm, it's so cool looking. Uh, it has, it's the most information I've found out about it. It's a Cumulus class Corsair. I love that. I love that name too. Cumulus class sounds so cool. And the fighters that come out of it, they, those do get a name. They're called Snub Fighters. Um, which those are cool too. That's, I think, a cool fighter ship design. It's like somewhere between an X-Wing and a, and like an, like a A-Wing. Um, yeah. It has that wedge shape of the A-Wing. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the, the Corsair just starts bombing the city. Um, he, you know, give, basically gives grief like one chance to be like surrender and, and give up all the goods and grief's like, no, we're not going to surrender to pirates. And he's like, cool, I'm just going to kill your people then. Uh, and just immediately starts dropping yeah. bombs. And, um, oh, oh, they have a little exchange where he's like, you're, you shot me, you killed my helmsman in cold blood. And what does he say? He says, I, I wrote this down too. Um, he says, he shot first, which and- absolutely has to be a fourth wall break meta commentary on the special edition of a new hope. Right. Yep. yep. And then Gorian says back, well, now I will shoot first. Uh, that that's, and that's when slam smash cut to the credits and then do, 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 do. But like with, with Gorian. <laughs> I'm gonna have to go back and check that. That's very cool. It's delightful. You're gonna, yeah, you're gonna enjoy it. <laughs> uh, all right. And then, so after the credits, we cut oh, to one mm. thing about, uh, Gorian shard. I really love that they brought back the tiny human talking to a giant face hologram. Yeah. Like, you don't, that's a, just such a classic Star Wars thing. Mm-hmm. So I, I, it was cool to see Gorian Shard, huge face, speaking down at High Magistrate um, Grief Karga. And uh, yeah, it just felt like we were watching a, a classic Star Wars scene. And then in the next scene, um, there, we're at this New Republic pilot's bar on some weird like really cool looking tropical planet and uh captain carson tiva that's the guy we could not remember his name from last episode um captain carson tiva uh goes in to get a drink and and somebody gives him a hollow vid disc or whatever something like that and he has to borrow the player like the viewer from the bartender um, and it's, I mean, it's very, very much the nature of this is like the help me, Captain Carson Tiva, you're our only hope. Yeah. Then uh, a Lasat, a Lasat pilot comes walking over uh, to talk to Carson Tiva. Evan, do you have any idea who this, who this 
Lasat creature is. So he looked familiar to me at the time. And I remember when Star Wars Rebels came out, I watched the pilot and then didn't continue. I, I feel like he was in that show. I know that his appearance got fans super excited. I, I didn't, I couldn't really feed into that excitement because I, I kind of vaguely knew who he was, but not really. But you, you know, the, you know, Rebels better than, far better than I do. So, so what's, yeah. what's his story? Well, he's, he, so he's one of the main uh, specters or, or what they, the, the crew of the ghosts are like the specters. Um, so he's one of them along with uh, uh, Kane and Jarrus and Ezra Bridger and Harrison Dula um, and Sabine Wren, the Mandalorian. Um, and he's awesome. He's like, he's basically like the muscle. Mm. Um, the Lasat. His his character design is actually what the original character design of Wookiees looked like. Interesting. So Chewbacca originally, like I think Ralph Ralph Quarry is that the Ralph McQuarrie. Ralph McQuarrie, his original like sketch for the the Chewbacca character looked exactly like this guy. Okay. Um, Zeb, his full name is Garazeb Aurelius, and he's awesome. He like he's a good fighter. Um, there's, I mean, when you watch Rebels, there's like so much about him, so much history. I, 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 the fact that they don't call him up by name though, in the episode, I had, I didn't know it was actually him. I got really excited, but then I, when I looked it up afterwards, that confirmed that it was him. Um, but yeah, he's another character. I was really hoping he'd come back. I really, it was really hoping we'd see more of him, but it's, I'm, I'm satisfied with just the cameo. I'm okay if that's all we get. Um, as long as we don't see anything bad happen to him. <laughs> yeah, it definitely made me want to restart Rebels. So, mission accomplished. Yeah. Dave, Dave Filoni. Um, and, okay, so they basically talk about, like, oh, he, he's, like, uh, uh, Tiva tells him what's going on. Yeah, the pirates are attacking Navarro, and Zeb's like, oh, it's too bad. I thought Navarro was going to make it. And mm-hmm. uh, he says, you know, well, I, I, we, I guess we have to tell... Uh, the new republic about this and, and get them to send help and he's like yeah they haven't you know answered any of our missives in, in a long time so good luck uh and he's like all right well i guess i'll have to go to coruscant myself and just do it in person so uh captain tiva flies to coruscant and meets with tim meadows colonel <laughs> tuttle <laughs> Colonel um, Tim Meadows. Colonel Tim he, Meadows. He was absolutely playing himself, which Colonel, I, I'm, I loved it. But. Colonel Ladies, man. Yeah. Um, and he's in his office, and now Aliyah Kane has ended up working for him. And she she comes in, she kind of overhears their conversation. And she comes in at an opportune time just to insert herself and be like, uh, excuse me, Colonel, I'm about to head to the commissary. You want, you want me to get anything? Um <laughs> And takes that opportunity to sort of insert herself into there and be like, yeah, well, oh my gosh, if my memory serves correctly, Navarro is one of the, one of the planets that hasn't signed the charter yet. They're not a member planet. Oh, darn. I guess we can't help them. And it's very, very clear. And Tiva is immediately suspicious because he sees that she has the amnesty pen. So he knows she's a former Imperial, um, that she something is up something is up with her she knows more than she's letting on um one really good line that came out of this scene was uh when yeah when he's uh uh, uh is trying to trying to appeal to him and say you know the, this is why we need the ships this is 
we need to help them because I think like we've got this going on. We've got rumors of, you know, Moff, Moff Gideon didn't make it to trial and all these other things happening. And I think they might all be connected. So we should at least check it out. And he tells him, you know, basically reinforces the thing about like we have um, Navarro's not even a member planet. They didn't sign. So we have a backlog of like planets that are uh, on paper under our protection. And he's not wrong. I like I think, you know, if they have this system in place, he's not wrong. But it's yet another example of like they've just turned into a bureaucracy and it's all it all comes down to paperwork and filing the right forms. And he says this isn't a rebellion anymore. We have a structure. And that, like, that's a painful thing to hear, I think, if you're, you know, an X-Wing pilot rebel. Yeah. Th- this scene, it very much felt like an addendum to episode three, which was all about that. We sp- we spent a lot of time on that in our last episode, breaking it down and how it was an interesting premise and how it helped explain the the fall of the New Republic after its ascent um and i i gotta say tim meadows was cracking me up because he had this very beleaguered um apathetic bureaucrat thing going on which mm-hmm. i just loved like the way he he started playing the vid from grief karga and like halfway through just removed the disc he's like i got it i got it and then, <laughs> and then when alia kane is like you know what they're not a member planet and he just kind of stares off at his face like that's not good <laughs> it's just like, <laughs> it's like He's just so useless. I I love it. Um, that said, the, this scene was. I wanted. I really. I'm eager to talk to you about this scene because mm. um, Carson Tava. He's he's requesting help for Navarro, but then he starts listing off these other things like pirates in the outer rim, Gideon Moff Gideon not making it to trial, and I'm like, he's making all these connections that the show hadn't made you know what i mean like and i'm like wait wait what <laughs> where, where is this coming from because it didn't feel like it it felt like he was freestyling and referencing stuff that we hadn't seen uh-huh and also it doesn't i don't think it really pays off like later late i don't think at any point in the season do we get confirmation that gorian shard no had anything to do with all of these other events that are going <laughs> right. And and if it if the season had been bu- building toward that, that would have been cool if there had been like we were throughout, let's say, episodes one through six. There were like there's an attack on this planet. There's a conspiracy on this planet and they seem unrelated. And then there's like a revelation in the last episode. Oh, my God, everything's connected. Mm-hmm. And then the big bad reveals himself or something. But none, none of that happens. So this scene and his rationale for intervention didn't ring true for me yeah and i i could see like the empire paying gorian shard some money just to cause chaos and like do this thing because it's going to be you know it's going to sow dissent and cause chaos and that'll be a diversion to pull attention away from what we're trying to do over here um and i guess they don't have to confirm that that's the case but like that would have been i don't know that would have tied it together tiva even literally says these words he's like um, I don't think this is an isolated episode in an, in an episode of the show that is an isolated episode because it really doesn't connect to anything else. Uh. <laughs> yeah, and all they had to do was add a scene, like a tag at the end of this episode showing like maybe, uh, oh, who's this Starscream character you like so much? Vane. Um, like showing like Vane 
having escaped from the battle, mm-hmm. like meeting with an imperial officer and exchanging yeah. mo- money or something. Like just throw that in, and then it's like, oh, they were connected, but no. Oh well, That's weird. yeah. Um, one other one other thing that I thought uh, was cool in this in this scene was like, or just maybe not cool, but like it added to the complexity of the whole situation was the amnesty thing. Like that comes back yeah. in a big way. And he, and the way he says like, um, you know, she's being very dismissive, but they're not a member. They didn't, they didn't sign the charter. And, and uh, Tiva's like, Oh, that's a very uh, imperial way of thinking. And um, Colonel Tim Meadows just like, you're mm-hmm. out of line captain. And again, he's not, he's not wrong, even though he is like, we yeah. know he's wrong, but in his position, you know, he. This is somebody that works for him, and he's giving them a chance to redeem themselves, and you know, like go straight and and serve the serve the republic. And so he has to. I get why he like as his, yeah. her boss, he has to kind of step in on her behalf there. So he's not wrong for doing that. It just so happens that she's a turncoat spy. So yeah, yeah. I I, I like that. I I like the political dynamics in that office and yeah it served as a nice epilogue i guess you could say to episode three yeah especially because elia kane unfortunately doesn't come back later in the season and she's a great character too i want to see more of her um so we go back to uh moses karga leading his people through the desert of navarro and (laughs) Uh, by the way how many people actually live in navarro because some of those wide shots so like a city full of 30 people or something like (laughs) (laughs) it's enough that can fit in one cave basically (laughs) um and he's he gives them this rousing speech about you know i've sent for help and and they're gonna come the new republic is gonna come and help us uh and then we see tiva and his x-wing flying to whatever planet it is with the raptors and the dinosaur turtle that the covert is hiding out on death trap planet, death trap planet. (laughs) Um, and he's got his green astromech R seven. And, uh, as soon as he walks up, there's like a tense standoff. He's like, Oh wait, Hey, um, you know, I'm here for, uh, uh, I'm here for my buddy R five and (laughs) reveals that R five has been, uh, spying on them the whole time or just maybe just doesn't like the fact that he got pulled out of Pelimoto's shop and um he the the way the the dialogue isn't 100 percent clear but my interpretation of it was that r5 called tiva just to let him know what was going on and tell him like come come get me here um do you think the other because the other uh, the other possibility one of the other possibilities is that Pelimoto is part of the New Republic, like, and in a in a way, like, as like a rebel, and so she talked Din into using R five instead of another droid, um, and refitting his N one so that he would eventually get R five back in their possession. Hmm. I'm I'm much less leaning towards that explanation rather than like those series of events happened and it the result was R5 ends up with them. But then R5 made an independent decision when he was there to be like, yeah, I might as well take advantage of this situation and get in touch with my old rebel friend. Peli does say, may the force be with you when they leave. But I, I guess my, I was thinking that at this point, 
in the Star Wars history. May the force be with you is just something you said, like, have a nice day. Like it, it just become kind of commonplace. But that's interesting. I, I did. I, I struggled to wrap my head around this, the R5D4 thing. Like, yeah, did R5D4 take it upon itself to flag it? Did they just have a like it was the comp, the the communications were just open with R5D4 over the years and they just tapped into it. It was a little odd. Yeah, because he he would have to be planted there, right? Or how would, I guess, how would the captain, how would Carson Tava even know he was there unless a rebel or a new new Republic person planted him there, right? Mm -hmm. It's interesting. Yeah, and it's it, like on one on one side, maybe it's just happenstance that he ended up there. Yeah. Um, but I don't know. <laughs> um, then we get to uh, this is just one of the best moments of the entire show. The, um, the speech. Yeah, the speech. Uh, <laughs> Mando Din Djarin has the talking hammer, and he's holding <laughs> yeah. it. <laughs> And he's saying, you know, Navarro needs our help and this and that. Um, and one of my favorite parts of this is he was like, um, uh, Grief Karga has offered me attractive land on Navarro and we should we should go and help them. And then we should live there because so our culture may flourish. Um, so our children may know what it is to play in the sunlight. We've been hiding out for too long. You know, it's time for us to come back. And pause uh pause takes uh yeah pause Vizsla takes the talking hammer and he says um the question we should be asking ourselves is why we've we've already sacrificed so much and now this guy is asking us to sacrifice even more and we should be asking ourselves why because we're mandalorians that's why <laughs> yeah i i mean i don't see how anyone could not like this scene like it's it's unimpeachable. It's just, it, it's so moving. It's a great subversion of expectations, right? Cause Paz, mm-hmm. Paz does not like Din Djarin, like on a personal level, I don't think. Right. Um, they just don't see eye to eye. They've, they fought right in Book of Boba Fett. They, they yeah, really, he, he challenged him for the dark saber and lost hard. Yeah. They went at it. And, um, at every turn he's tried to turn away Din Djarin, at least until he bathed in the living waters. So, this says so much both about the Mandalorian belief system and about Paz that like, if you, yeah, I actually, this, this, this episode had to remind me that grief cargo was not a great guy in season one. And, um, and we saw the forge destroyed in the sewers of Navarro. We saw a lot of dead Mandalorians and all those Mandalorians died to keep Grogu alive, essentially. And, as the armorer says, maybe in the previous episode, yes, in the previous episode, there's no greater service that a Mandalorian can do than to save the life of a foundling. Din Djarin saved the life of a foundling, which was a, a double gift to Paz because it was his son. Um, mm, yeah, this, this whole this whole scene, the, the framing of it, the lighting of it, I just, how can you not root for these guys? So yeah, I, I'm not surprised you love this scene. It was it's definitely one of the more memorable set pieces I think in the whole series. And it just keeps going up because then, <laughs> yeah. cause then Bo comes in and she's like, 
she's just like, this is a whatever class ship and we're all going to pile inside of it and we're going to drop off two teams. And I wrote down this part of her speech. She says, uh, um, if everyone acts as they should, we can use the element of surprise and defeat an enemy that outnumbers us. Uh, She goes on to talk about Navarro is an independent planet. You lived there once, hiding in the sewers, but now you can be heroes. Yeah. It's such a stirring speech. Like we're just seeing these man, all these Mandalorians getting ready and it's just so exciting. <laughs> uh, and, and Katie Sackhoff is just killing it. Yeah. Um, they. Okay. So they, so, so they get there. Uh, they pull off the first part of the plan. They like drop off these guys over here. They drop off the other Mandalorians over here. How about that shot, by the way, of like, camera inside the bay of Bo-Katan's ship with the Mandalorians like falling away from the camera uh-huh and like and, like hovering down onto Navarro I just I think that was in the trailer I saw that shot I think in a trailer today for May the 4th oh by the way happy Star Wars day it's May, May the 4th day. um such a beautiful shot and just sums up how it's like a Halo ODST kind of moment like just yeah so cool that's a really good comparison, ODST. Um, they, uh, yeah, so Man- Mando is going after the, the Corsair. Um, and so he starts like, uh, what's it called? Like doing just attack runs on it. Yeah. And Shard, Gorian Shard launches the stub fighters to go after him. And there's like five of them on there. They chase him into a canyon and they're having like a little bit of dogfight. And the um oh oh i forgot to set this up the at one point they they show a quarian and a trandoshan come out of a bar and or some building and they see a tree full of kawakian monkey lizards yeah and just out of cruelty start shooting at them with their blasters later when the Mandalorians are like sneaking through town, a bunch, a group of them gets like to this corner and they see the, the monkey lizards and the monkey lizards just like mm, right over there and start pointing. And they're like, Oh, it might be an ambush. Uh, take cover. And thank goodness they do because it is an ambush. Yep. Um, they get boxed in and then boom, pauses, big boots, just land. And he starts firing his minigun, just <laughs> taking dudes out then he turns around and he like takes out the other side. <laughs> it's just amazing. This is like, like I'm just watching this. Like, God, I wish I had all these action figures so I could recreate this and just pew, pew, smash them together. It's so good. Um, the action is just shot so well. Uh, they, I think at some point, um, Bo comes in and also starts attacking the main ship. Um, that, that pod where all the gunner, Bubbles come out and start shooting out the sides of it is really cool. And Shard, this is probably like the biggest tactical error that he makes. Um, He's got like this Ugnaught second in command on board and he's like giving him updates like, oh, we lost another engine and oh, the shields are failing. And so he he orders all of the snub fighters to come back and protect the Corsair. So effectively pulling them off the chase from Mando, um, which I think is like the, the fatal mistake that he makes. Um, the, we were like cutting back and forth between this dog fight and this ground fight. And, uh, the, the, 
the mandos that got to that courtyard are pinned down because the pirates have set up this this um, gun emplacement. Yes. This heavy gun. And they're all pinned down. How are they going to get out of it? How do they get out of it, Evan? <laughs> they get out of it. But I think this is the armor's first foray into battle. Mm-hmm. And of course, because she is the badass among badasses, doesn't even lift doesn't even pick up a projectile weapon. She yep. relies on her talking hammer with her, <laughs> her tongs. And she just like goes to town on these hired goons in, in grief Karga's office uh, and just like takes them down one-on-one without anyone noticing. And then eventually gets up to the gunner, takes him down. And then she's like standing on the balcony in, in her full armor gear and all that the trend ocean gets a classic falling death. <laughs> Yes. Um, yeah, I cannot believe we had to wait until the middle of season three to see the armor kick ass. Mm. And it's, but it, it's worth it's amazing. Wait. It's yeah. incredible. The fact that she's just using her tools from the forge too, like those are her weapons and she wields them way more efficiently than probably she would a blaster anyway. Yeah. Like it's just incredible. Um, but <laughs> sorry. I'm like, I know I'm like fanboying out, but this episode got me so excited. Um, the, Oh man, another just cool thing that happens is we like at this point it, it is clear the tides have turned. Yeah. The Mandos are winning this fight. Um, they cut to one of the last snub fighters is like barreling down towards the ground, about to crash, and there's a Mandalorian just standing on top of it. Oh, that's right. Firing like a hand blaster into it, <laughs> just riding it down while it's on in flames, and it just like they just jump off and jetpack away at the last second before the subfighter crashes. It's it and it's just like a sim- single cutaway, almost in the background. There's so many badass things happening. They're just like, yeah, here's another toss, another one into the background. Um, then we go into Gorian shards on his ship, and his little Ugnat guy is like, "There's only one subfighter left, Captain, and it's Vane." Of course. Um, like I was saying last episode, man, Vane is a great pilot. He, the fact that he like lasted through this whole battle, uh, he was the, the only the only pirate standing at the end of it, and he just says, um, "Been a pleasure serving you, Captain, but it's time to part ways." Yeah, and that, he, he's definitely a star scream, as you correctly identified last time. Very capable, very disloyal. Yep. Um, he doesn't come back, spoiler, he doesn't come back this season, but I am really hoping he's like at least a minor antagonist in, in next season or that they do the Fast and Furious thing where, uh, he goes from being a villain to being like part of the crew somehow. <laughs> yeah. I'd be okay with that. Yeah. He needs to make a reappearance. We just need closure on, on him. Yeah. Um, okay. So then, uh, Oh, there's also another cool moment where they they the Mandos are like chasing the last last of the pirates, and they get pincered by all of the townspeople of Navarro. And Grief Card is leading them, and they just sort of surround them and and force them to surrender. And so then, um, High Magistrate Grief Carga gives a speech about how the these Mandos helped save the day. And he is hereby ceding all the lands from the western lava flats to the Bullet Canyon um, to the Mandalorians and giving them uh, a lot of land to, to set up shop in and, and settle down and start a life. And he has uh, a really poetic line where he says, you may no longer have a home planet, but you do now have a home, which was mm. just really cool. Now, one thing 
I did I did like this episode, especially the second half, because the whole fight scene just so so engaging, so captivating. Wouldn't it have been one thing I was thinking about after rewatching this is wouldn't it have been cool if this was the finale? Like I still love the finale of this of this season, but what if the whole this is a parallel universe mm-hmm. where it was written this way? What if the whole season was leading towards the reconquest of Mandalore, the reconquest of Mandalore, but for one reason or another, it just was not meant to be. And then they give that speech about we need to find a home have our children in the sun and then they settle on navarro like mm. it's not what they wanted but it was what, what what's the um the rolling stones you might not always get what you want but you get what you need kind of thing yeah um i'm still grateful for the finale because and we'll get there in the next podcast because i love some of the stuff in the last two episodes but that would have been cool wouldn't it if like if they all settled on navarro kind of a symmetry that's where they started that's where they ended it's not it's the new mandalore yeah, <laughs> yeah. I kind of, I'm, I'm kind of bummed that we don't really get much like the Mandalorians of Navarro. Like, yeah, we don't, they, 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 it's very brief the amount of time the show actually spends with them in that, in that situation. Um, but yeah, it would have been interesting seeing them like blend their culture with the Navarroans. Um, yeah, it's. I also, I do like the way it does end, but that yeah. would be in an, in a parallel universe that would this would be a satisfying conclusion to the season that's a good way to put it yeah um okay so then uh there's another like armor and bow scene um this time she's telling her the armor is telling Bo about the great forge of mandalore and how she saw it when it was uh when it was operating and and it was large and ornate and the air rang with the song of a hundred hammers and then she compares it to the forge that they have there and says, you know, and this one functions too. And, you know, they're the same, but just without all of the big pomp and fanfare. Yeah. Um, and she tells Bo to remove her helmet. And if I'm Bo, I'm, I'm thinking this is a test. Uh, so I'm going to hesitate too. And the armor says, do you respect my station? Yes. Then remove your helmet. Um, and she does. And she tells her, you have walked both worlds. You are the one who can unite us. All of the Mandalorians from all of the tribes need to walk together uh, so that we can retake Mandalore. Yeah, this was... I guess I buy it, but just barely. I think I I would have loved to seen, and it's hard because she's wearing a mask and she's not the talkative type, but some scene where the armorer has some conversation where she's like maybe i i don't know bo-katan has inspired me or maybe maybe it's time to to loosen the creed or something it's just this is the character that is the most devout the most unflinching in her her like dogmatic approach to being a mandalore and so it's just a couple episodes later where she's like bo-katan you bathe in the in the living waters. You are one of us again, and and just a few episodes later, asking to remove the helmet and and taking on Mandalore. I get it because it's the mythosaur. I think is the missing link there. Right? I think so. I think that's it, the deciding factor. It's um, maybe they needed to play that up more for me as a viewer. Like it was, it was like seeing like 
seeing Jesus in a piece of toast or something. You know what I mean? Like, is it like that? <laughs> is it like that? That big of a deal? It obviously it is, and I think that's what inspires her. But maybe I just needed like a little scene or a little explanation, just because coming from the armor, who's like the Pope, it's um, <laughs> the Mando Pope. It's kind of. It's a little. I had to, I think I just had to suspend my disbelief a bit. How did you take it? I totally get what you're saying. Yeah. I think that. I think that this is the the. A thing where the 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 armorer is she adheres to the Mandalorian code by the letter. Um, yeah. She will not deviate from it whatsoever. Uh, when it comes to her personal beliefs, like, and she also, I mean, we see her be very draconic towards, um, uh, uh, Mando towards Din about like, oh, you've removed your helmet. That's it. You're no longer one of us until you do this thing. So I think she's like, what she's softening on is her stance on like, okay, maybe not everybody has to follow this, but I'm not going to change. I don't think, I don't think we're ever going to see the armor take her own helmet off. I don't think it's going in that direction at all. But I do think it's she's softened on like, okay, maybe I just don't need to be, you know, so rigid towards others that don't fully subscribe to the ethos. Okay. Um, But I think that Bo telling her about seeing the the mythosaur, um, this is my headcanon, but I feel like there's probably some sort of um, very specific Mandalorian prophecy about, you know, this hero that will do X, Y, and Z, and they're the one that will unite all the tribes. And part of that prophecy probably is like, and they will see, they will have a vision of the mythosaur. They will see the mythosaur firsthand. And it's probably a thing where like the armorer is just adding up all these events in her mind and she can't reach any other conclusion than Bo is the prophesied Mandalorian. Okay. Yeah, I definitely buy that. If that's the case, maybe like back in the cave on the Death Trap planet, like if she had a tapestry or something and it showed like a mythosaur and like a Mando reaching up to it or something and just Mm. like looking at that and then looking back at Bo, something like that would help bridge that gap for me. But what you're saying makes a lot of sense. And clearly the mythosaur is something of such deep reverence that seeing one in the wild is so rare yeah, I think that 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 may that gave uh, the armor a change of heart. I suppose. Yeah. Uh, anything else about that scene before we move on to the like coda of the episode? No, th- we covered everything. Yeah. All right. So th- this episode has like a really cool little creepy ending where Captain Tiva is flying back and he's like in deep space in the outer rim, like in the middle of, you know, off the, off the star charts. And um, I just, I love the way that they did all of this. The music was great. Like it was so atmospheric. Um, I was actually kind of worried for, I'm like, Oh, something's going to happen to this guy. I thought he was a goner. Yep. Yeah. Um, he sees a derelict Lambda shuttle. Uh, one of those classic like gull wing folding gull wing Imperial shuttles um, that I guess have been repurposed by the New Republic. And his R7 sends out uh, a, a probe that like flies off and detaches yeah. and flies off. And it's scanning the inside of this. There's like a blast hole in the side of the shuttle. Um, and it goes in. And I just love like the lighting inside of there. And you see like 
the 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 dead bodies that have just been floating in space this whole time and um uh it's only finding new republic um bodies it uh, doesn't find the body of moff gideon um and this was the shuttle that was carrying moff gideon to his trial and r7 uh scans something on the wall and when they analyze it it turns out it's a fragment of beskar alloy Dun dun dun. Yeah. Who do you think who do you think is responsible for that Beskar alloy, Evan? Well, so I remember watch, I watched that the first time and I was watching it uh with my wife Beth and we kind of looked at each other and we're like, it like just because it's a it's a piece of, like Beskar is so they were tr- using it as you know currency in season one. So mm-hmm. we I wasn't at that even though I had a lot of uh doubts about the armor. I didn't make the connection there. So I'm just like, I, that could be, it could be uh, uh, anything for me. So I didn't really know what to make it, but I didn't, I didn't make the mental connection that like a Mando had broken Gideon out. Okay. Okay. Cause I think that, I think that moment feeds into the whole suspicion about yeah. like, you know, and then two episodes later, the episode's called the spies. Like, I'm like, oh, they're really setting this up. Like somebody, some significant character, like it's, I didn't really think it would be any of these people, but like maybe Paz, maybe the armorer, maybe Axe was my number one subject, Axe Wolves, uh, suspect. Makes the most sense because he had the means to do so, right? Mm-hmm. He could get into deep space. Um, by the way, you're totally right. The whole scene shot like a horror movie. It's yeah. really effective. I also, I'm like, oh man, they're going to kill off the captain. Like it just felt like, there was this sense of dread yep. that something bad was going to happen. It also felt a little, um, you know, that scene in like the last third of Jaws when they go to find the ship that has a big like hole bitten out of it and the yeah. head comes out. I was like, oh my God, is a rebel head going to come out like from Jaws? <laughs> but it was filmed like that. I was just like on the edge of my seat and like something terrible is going to happen. So if they ever wanted to set a horror like series in the Star Wars universe, they could do it. Like, oh yeah, there's some episodes of like Clone Wars and um, uh, even like Bad Batch where they, they, they it is kind of like that where they like you know somebody ends up on like a, a derelict like spaceship that's just floating out in the middle of nowhere and there's like some kind of creature loose on it, yeah, you know hunting people down, stalking them like like a xenomorph. Um, so they do that occasionally with shows yeah. like that. Um, one other, one last thing is when I uh, when I first watched this episode and they were like the Beskar alloy my mind immediately went to ooh I wonder if it was Boba Fett I wonder if for some reason oh Boba Fett and Fennec Shand like decided that they needed uh Moff Gideon for something or I don't know that they personally wanted to deliver justice to him so I was like what if that's the whole um uh misdirect is that we're, we're meant to suspect that like some one of these Mandalorians from this show um, is a turncoat, but it's actually like this is how they pull Boba Fett back into this show since Man- Din Djarin took up a full episode and a half on his show. <laughs> yeah. Hey, back. Yeah. Um, that's not a bad idea. That is some that sounds like something Boba Fett would do. Yeah. Yeah. Cause well, old Boba Fett, definitely old Boba Fett would have like not had really any personal loyalties to anybody. And if the money was good enough, yeah, he would, sure. He'd go and break out, um, Moff Gideon or whatever. I do think the journey, 
I don't really want to talk too much about Book of Boba Fett because I, I know I you have, have a lot of negative thoughts about it. Feelings, yeah. But I do think the journey of that show was showing like, well, Boba's changing. He's not, he doesn't, well, he flat out says, I don't want to be a bounty hunter anymore. Um, and also the show, pr- this show proves my theory wrong. It wasn't Boba Fett. So we can move on from that. <laughs> okay, <laughs> fair enough. Um, all right. So that's everything I've got for the the objectively speaking best episode of the mandalorian so far i will die on that hill um the pirate do you have anything else to add no i've got a lot to add for the next one though so i'm eager to get into it uh this next one was also a gem loved this episode so much chapter 22 uh episode six of season three guns for hire um this episode has such a cool cold open we start with this awesome looking ship. I don't know. We might have seen this ship design before. Can you recall? Uh, have we seen like oh, the, it's, the, the Quarren ship? It's a um, Quarren ship. Yeah, I think so. And it's got the bumps on it that are kind of similar to the Mon Calamari, which makes sense since they share a planet. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That felt very cool. Almost like fifth element. It uh, had a very cool sleekness to it. Very cool design. And then we go to the inside of it. It's a bunch of Quarrens and the captain is just in this, like it looks like a back to tank uh, in the middle I love of, that. of the of, of the yeah of the of the uh, uh, control room, and one of her uh, crew members comes up with like a fish in a glass <laughs> and just dumps it in and gives her a little snack, and then they get hailed by a imperial warship, um, and they she communicates with them and she's like. Um, uh, I, we were not aware that of any warlords that require payment in this region. And it's Axe Woves on his yep. stolen ship. I think this, yeah. is, this is Moff Gideon's ship, right? That's, that that's what I assumed. Yeah. Um, and he says, uh, we're not criminals, or I'm not a criminal. And she's like, oh, I, I intended no disrespect. Basic is not my native language. Uh, you know, I simply meant that... Um, we we weren't expecting to see the the majestic imperial fleet all the way out here. Um, I loved how much of it she she was such a smooth talker, so good at like getting herself out of a jam. I really love that. I love this character. I, I was this th- this show does such a good job of just creating these characters that um, you know they serve their purpose in 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 the episode, and but they clearly have so much cool implied backstory. Uh, and I just wanted to see them do more. I just wanted them to have more adventures. And this is definitely one of them. I think her name is Captain Shugoth, um, which is very clearly a reference to Cthulhu. Because um, <laughs> the Quarrens, I mean, the analog is right there. The squid-faced Quarrens. And yeah, so it turns out uh, Axe and his Mandos were um, hired to quote-unquote rescue, or I guess just take back this yeah, prince reclaim that reclaim reclaim uh this this mon Cali mari prince yep uh that his rich parents hired them to get him back because he ran away with captain sugar because they're in love um yeah <laughs> and the, it's a uh, classic yeah. romeo and juliet story two star-crossed lovers from warring cultures that's so funny i um in I totally thought of Romeo and Juliet very much that I did love the captain, the prince, not so much. And the whole, their little, like, I don't know what it was. Maybe it was the big Mon Calamari fish mask, but they're like little, 
uh, lover's moment there felt a little her face tentacles like <laughs> yeah. like rub his chin <laughs> that felt a little much to me but <laughs> uh, I did love the captain loved that she was clearly like uh, a silver tongue diplomat in a way and could kind of talk her way out of trouble hopefully we'll see her again but yeah that was a good way to reintroduce that I guess that splinter cell of mm-hmm. Bo-Katan's former entourage and then um it ends with uh Casca Reeves is um I think Sasha, Sasha Banks is the actress that plays her um uh walking away with the prince and the prince says I thought you Mandalorians were honorable and she goes yeah we are kid all it takes is a few credits yeah all right then uh we show the opening credits and we cut back to um uh, Bo and Din are flying to Plazir 15 because that's where Axe Woves and all of his people are staying. Um, apparently they got a good thing going with uh, the the people that we're about to meet, the characters we're about to meet who run this planet. Yeah, and I'm, I think based, it sounds like you like this episode a lot. This was maybe my least favorite. So I'm excited to get into it because it sounds like we're on opposite sides, but it all starts to go downhill for me when they get to like the throne room on Plazir 15. But Okay. I think but, that's fair. I, yeah. this, it's worth mentioning. This episode is directed by Bryce Dallas Howard. Who um, I love. Mm-hmm. She, she also directed a, a, a handful of episodes in season one and two, I believe. Um, yes. I remember seeing some behind the scenes footage of her directing the, the cast. Yeah. I think she directed the episode where they have the ATST with like the cool dark paint job that the he like teaches the townspeople to defend themselves against. I'm pretty sure she directed that episode. Okay. Yep. Um, listeners, you can write in your hate mail if I got that wrong. Um, <laughs> so yeah, I, I like the themes that come up in this episode. I like a lot of what happens. I don't, I, I don't, I think I'm aligned with you that as a, it doesn't all work as a whole, uh, it doesn't all come together really well. And there's one thing when we get to lose big three, I'll, I'll save it for that. But there's one thing that happens in here that I feel like is really distracting. Um, okay. They get there. Um, and yeah, she, she points out like, Oh, there's the fleet. We stole every one of those ships from the empire. And now they're not mine anymore. They're axes. Cause I don't have the dark saber. Wah, wah, wah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, they get a hail from the base. And they're like, oh, hey, well, you know, come land your plane here. And, and they're like, okay, whatever. And then it, like, takes over the ship. Yep. And this voice is like, the automated guidance system will do whatever. And they basically pilot her ship to the landing. Uh, they're greeted by a black R2 unit and a black poto- protocol droid. Um, Which was very cool. It kind of, it's got this vibe of, like, what's going on? They're, the Mandos are confused. There's Imperial droids there. So it's mm-hmm. starting to build up the suspense, for sure. Um, they get into a Hyperloop shuttle. And, again, the friendly automated voice tells them, do not attempt to leave the vehicle. This is not a request. Yeah. Um, Din and Bo have a cool moment back and forth where they're like, uh, do you think we're going to have to blast our way out of here? Yeah, definitely. And they both yeah. get ready for some action. And then, yeah, then they walk into the party scene. Do you want to do you want to set up the party scene? Yeah. So, yes, um, this is they go in and it's got this like. 
it's got this like court of Louis the 14th kind of vibe <laughs> to it, right? Mm-hmm. Like um, aristocratic, a bunch of fancy looking aliens around a long table, a lot of uh, airy classical music. Uh, later on, we'll see folks playing like a Star Wars version of croquet. Uh, croquet. <laughs> it's um, yeah. So this is an affluent. This is like the regal chamber. And then we see like the leaders of the planet and they are played by Jack Black and Lizzo. Mm -hmm. So this is where I really started to get skeptical because, well, transparently, I absolutely adore Jack Black. I can't get enough of Jack Black. He was brilliant as Bowser in the Super Mario Brothers movie. I will watch anything with him, whether it's Nacho Libre or Tropic Thunder or any Jumanji sequel. I'll be there to watch him. Mm -hmm. Love him. I don't know what he's doing in Star Wars. It's just, it was just, it was immediately distracting. And then Lizzo, also, what are you doing here? Wearing this kind of like Queen Amidala knockoff thing with these like um, hologram fairy wings on the mm-hmm. back. So it's every once in a while, Star Wars ventures into this goofy, uh, campy territory. And I think this episode is one of those situations. It, the and then I don't know why Bryce Dallas Howard and the producers decided to cram all the guest stars into one episode too because right. not only uh, and I I don't want to get ahead of the story but not only do we meet Jack Black and Lizzo but we meet the immortal and in, in estim es, you know the the just um, legendary Christopher Lloyd who we mm-hmm. all love but he's also in this episode it's a back to back to back guest stars which feels a bit like stunt casting to me, which feels, it just kind of pulled me out of the illusion of it, I guess. But what was your take when you saw a bearded Jack Black and Lizzo with her fairy wings? That's a good point um, that like they crammed three huge name guest stars into one episode. Um, But I don't know, I guess I could, uh, I'm just playing devil's advocate here. And I think if they had spread those out, then it would have been like, Oh, the the Christopher Lloyd episode. Oh, the Lizzo episode. Oh, the Jack and like those. It would have become like that. Those three episodes, rather than like oh, the one episode with all the guest stars. Um, I see. I don't know. That, again, good. I don't know how much I believe in that. I'm just kind of playing yeah. like no. That's looking that's at the fair. other angle of it. Yeah. Um, for me, everything about when he walks in and there's I, I tried to like write down all of the species that we see. We see like a Bith, some Rodians, Ithorians, uh, Ishi Tib. Sullustin and those frog creatures from season one. I zeroed in on the frog creature immediately. Yeah. And then we see Lizzo. My big takeaway when we saw Lizzo was like, yeah, the headdress. And my first thought was uh, Amidala, but I don't think you've gotten to this part of the Clone Wars yet with um, Bo's sister, Satine Kreese. No. You haven't seen her yet. Um, I think when you get there, it's going to be the reverse for me. Like for me, it reminded me of Satine Kreese. I think when you see her for the first time, it's going to remind you of Lizzo. Okay. And and the the style of her hair and the way that like that holographic floating thing behind her adornment, whatever behind her. I feel like it was deliberately in the style of uh, Satine Kreese's fashion. Okay. Um, and maybe like a blend of her and Amidala because it was very ornate and very fancy. I definitely got Amidala vibes, yeah. Yeah. Um, and then Jack Black, 
Yeah, <laughs> I was on board with all of this up until we hear his name. Cap- oh. <laughs> Captain Bombardier. And that's when I was like, this is a Saturday morning cartoon. This, <laughs> this is... We've we've gone we've gone beyond the pale here. Yeah, yeah, the like the amazing adventures of Captain Bombardier in, yeah. in the fifth dimension or something, right? Yeah. <laughs> I agree. That that name was a bit on the nose. He's like, come uh drink with us. I hope you like secretions. And <laughs> there is like this this alien, maybe a Galushian, I don't know, like in, in this pod. Yep. And there's just tubes coming down to like everybody's seat. And they're literally just whatever it's secreting out of its body. They're just sucking through a straw. Yeah, it was, it was, yeah, it was like part, um, yeah, like I said, part like pre-revolution France, part <laughs> Alice in Wonderland, right? It, it just had Alice a very, yep. very fantastical, surreal vibe to it. Yeah, Um I do, I do like the bit of world building though. Like everything that the, the, the way that they introduce the whole like amnesty program and like mm-hmm. that keeps coming back. And and so Captain Bombardier, that's his uh, backstory is he was a facilities planning officer and that's vital to this character, to us liking this character, right? He can be somebody that was part of the space Nazis, but he wasn't a soldier. He wasn't like, you know, firing missiles at anybody, or he wasn't on the Death Star. Uh, he was a facilities plan. That sounds innocuous enough. Facilities planning officer. That he could have been a good guy that got conscripted or brainwashed. You know, maybe they did like the mind flare to him um, to make him be in the in the in the Empire. Because the way he talks about it is that like he suffered under the Empire. Like he wasn't thriving as a as a planning officer. He was like, this is what I have to do. Um, oh yeah, I I mean I couldn't hold him in contempt. One because it's Jack Black and he's just lovable. His lovableness transcends his characters, and then the character itself was very, almost meek. You know, was mm-hmm. like apologetic, was clearly deferential to the Duchess mm-hmm. played by Lizzo. So it seemed Again, very dis- gen- genuine. Disappointing that we don't get a name. She's just the Duchess. <laughs> I looked that up to prep for our call and I was shocked that she's just the Duchess of Plazier 15. Like, how does that character not have a name? It's I, well, I'll say this. It's either disappointing or it's like, she's the Duchess. You know what I mean? Like capital T, capital D, the Duchess. Like, oh yeah. And that's, and, and, and from being played by somebody who just goes by Lizzo, like that's pretty iconic. So maybe it's, it's just that. And that's actually kind of, that actually kind of turned it around for me. I did, Hope that she would have a name, but I don't know. I think I'm okay with it just being the Duchess. Um, and I, I just liked her design a lot. I loved when she was like, uh, w- could I maybe please hold the baby? <laughs> yes. And this is just another great dad moment that Din has this season where he's just like, oh, no, no, he doesn't really take to strangers kindly. And she just holds up a fish and <laughs> he f- <laughs> immediately flips over. And they show Din's reaction. He's just like, head in his, like, forehead in his hands, shaking his head like, ugh. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was a cute little moment. I like the I like the the Duchess and Grogu bonded so quickly. Mm-hmm. I thought that was delightful. Um, I liked Lizzo a lot. I thought she was great in this. Um, you know what? I actually I will give it to Lizzo. My only I think experience with her she was on SNL, uh-huh. um, but I haven't really seen her act that much. She was she was good. I I, I don't really yeah. I can't I will it, as much as I've complained about the writing and parts in this season. 
I don't think there's been any bad acting. Um, maybe a no. scene or two with um, the actor who played Captain Carson Tava. But really? Some, some of his, there was a line delivery when he was talking with apathetic bureaucrat Tim Meadows <laughs> where it was a little, a weird delivery. But that was like oh, that one scene. In general, this season, the acting, especially by Sackoff, has been excellent. I think that's one of the best parts of this season, the acting. What is... Leon Phelps. Sorry, I had to... <laughs> I was like, I know the ladies' man character has an actual name. Leon Phelps. I'm Leon Phelps. Uh, sorry, that... that um, oh. <laughs> I'm going to cut that out, but... <laughs> to, um, to, Tim, I, uh, Tim Meadows has always been one of my favorites. Uh, he's, he's great on Bob's Burgers, too, as Mike the Mailman. Oh my god, I forgot it. I forgot that's him. Yeah. Another um, bureau- bureaucratic character. So so the Duchess and Captain Bombardier are talking about their um the history of like, you know, what how this planet is the way it is now. And so her family was like the royalty that was in charge and like they were a monarchy forever. Um and she's just a descendant of that line. So ostensibly she should be like the the queen single-handedly ruling this planet but she met captain bombardier somehow they fell in love and they decided to sort of combine their their skill sets and become like what do they they say like oh we went from royals to um i forget the wording of it but he says she explains we had our first democratic elections in the history of our planet um which is interesting yeah they're very much a power couple yeah, but not, not only that, I think it's really, like, the implication is is fascinating, which is that she gave up a tremendous amount of power because she just felt like it was the right thing to do, you know? Oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah, it's an interesting, right? It's an interesting, an ex-imperial and a monarchist combined to create a democracy. That is kind of a weird, unexpected turn. Mm-hmm. Huh. I didn't really think about that. That is cool. Yeah. Um, and, okay, so they explain, like, why they brought them there. And I, I need your help with uh, some of the details of this. Um, sure. They explain that there are they have a droid problem. And yep. Din is immediately like, droid problem, huh? <laughs> yeah, I bet. Um, and she says it's a coordinate or a malfunction. And, and uh, Jack Black is like, a, a um, coordinated malfunction. And they're like, oh, I don't know, maybe... Who knows? We're going to look into it. We want you guys to look into it. Um, And yeah, so the part that wasn't totally clear to me is they they ask, why don't you have all those other Mandalorians? You got Axe Wolves and his and his dudes. So why don't you have them take care of it? The the, can you explain to me why they couldn't? Yes. The reason and I caught this on the second watch was apparently because of Captain Bombardier, God, I can't even say it without laughing, <laughs> because of his affiliation with the Empire and his status as a leader now, the New Republic forbids Plazier 15 from having a standing army. Makes and sense. I guess that, that includes, I guess if the Mandalorians step foot into the capital, they would some, and they're already in the employ of the Duchess and the Captain, they would become the army, I guess. So... They can't invite a whole army. They can, however, invite a couple independent contractors, I suppose, to clear up the mess. 
The confusing part to me is that the loophole that they talk about seems to be, well, y'all are, you two are Mandalorians, so it's part of your religion that you can carry blasters. Um, Like, uh, it's a real world analog to, I think, the the Sikhs are a culture that, like, they can, they even have special exception to, like, bring, uh, they part of their religion is they carry a sword on them at all times. And I think, like, they can even fly on an airplane with it because of their, they have, like, a special exception for that. That might be apocryphal, but... Um, uh, but yeah, it confused me that like, well, these two particular Mandalorians, but is it, is the distinction that like Axe and all of his people are known to be like this mercenary, uh, group in the employee. So they can't make an exception for them, even though they're also Mandalorians. I guess so. You're, you're poking some important holes in this. I, I see where you're coming from. Maybe it's just a matter of size. Like okay. 50 Mandalorians, no good. A couple will look the other way. Yeah. Maybe something like that. Yeah. Because Bo, I mean, the other thing is like from a, if I'm a citizen of Blizzard 15 and I know in the back of my mind, oh, none of those guys with the blue armor can be in here like going around, you know, being cops or whatever. Yeah. Um, and then you see Bo in the same <laughs> armor, like yeah, with, shooting, with her friend with a cape. <laughs> battle droid in the streets of the marketplace. Yeah. Um, like I don't yeah. know that Bo's not part of them. I don't know. Right. I don't know their implied back. I didn't watch season two of The Mandalorian. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I just live on. I just live on Plazier fifteen and drink secretions and play space <laughs> coca. Uh, all right. Well, I, I'm willing to accept I missed a detail or something because yeah. I did watch it a couple times to try to figure that out. But like, I guess it's that. I guess it's that. That's the distinction. Is they're not part of. They're not already hired to go out and, you know, do things and protect the planet at large. So they are allowed to come into the city and do this job. Uh, they go and they talk to another another on-the-nose name, uh, Commissioner <laughs> Hellgate. <laughs> at least it's not spelled H-E-L-L-G-A-T-E. Yeah, they took out be- one of the L's. Yeah, <laughs> that was smart. Um, oh, I just, I forgot the best, the best line in the episode when uh, Bo is like, after they explain this whole thing, Bo turns to Din. She's like, so what do you think? And he's like, you had me at droids. Yeah. You had me at battle <laughs> droids. Um, all right. So we catch up with Commissioner Hellgate. And he's in his control room. And he's got his, like, big, you know, electronic panel. Watching all the the graphs and charts. And uh, he tells them that there was a series of... Um, cascading malfunctions that sort of led to the situation that they're at now. So it started with like uh, unexpected power cycles and then deleted task stacks and then traffic accidents, uh, heavy equipment failure resulting in injuries and then assault. And they're like assault. Yes. Assault. It's that bad. Oh my gosh. Um, He points out (laughs) He points oh. out that they have like a big fail <laughs> a big safe red button, <laughs> big red button. Uh, I love that, but I love how I love the way it sets up and pays off because he's like, "This is the big red button, and it will it will shut them all down." Um, yeah, because Bo is like, "Well, why don't you build in? Why don't you just shut them down? Why don't you like?" Um, and he says, "Oh no, we could do that at any time. I could I could slam my fist on this button." But I'm legally not able to do that because the citizens, now that we're a democracy, the citizens voted against interruption in droid services. 
And I think that's hilarious because we just, they, they played like a, a role um, oh, of all that, of the footage. That's my favorite part. Oh, you want to describe? Yeah. Oh man, I was watching that. It's like something you'd see on like a funny pre-ride video at like a Disney theme park. You yes. know, it like it just really goofy, these like comically over the top videos of like a battle droid knocking like oh no one of them like gets into a speeder and drives right into a wall one of them's like a um a chef at like a uh hibachi restaurant <laughs> and starts like <laughs> chopping up the patrons it's just like <laughs> i i could have watched an hour of those videos that was i love that yeah. yeah it's a um like a rolling cart that picks up <laughs> trash and just starts like yeah, slamming it one. That was the best one. Um, a B1 battle droid that's carrying a bunch of uh shopping bags for a, for a woman and he just starts ripping them apart. <laughs> um then the one that crashed into a wall and then the chef bot. It's incredible. By the way, uh I'm adding every single one of these droids to our cage match um because we really got to bolster the droids numbers. Yeah, they need all the help they can get. Yeah. And they're going to and in my we're going to revisit that that conversation because in a big way the droids get a, a, a huge um, boost in their side for this robots versus dinosaurs battle because we go down to, um, uh, well, eventually they go down to like the loading docks and there's a whole bunch of B1 and B2 uh, battle droids. Oh, right, yeah. So um, if that, if they use Hellgate's failsafe the way it actually works, then these droids are are going to, definitely bolster the side of the droids versus the space dinosaurs battle. Yeah. And it's a whole city's worth of droids, right? So did you get, let me ask you this. Did you get some like Wally vibes from this? Oh city? yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Especially how Gates, like him lamenting, like, yeah, I could shut, I could solve this problem with a button press, but uh, even after that footage that you saw, yeah. the, the <laughs> citizens still voted not to, not to shut them down. Yeah, they, like, they, they're taking, they just have- Convenience over safety. Exactly. They just live lives of leisure. None of them work, right? The droids do everything and they just enjoy the art. I mean, actually, candidly, it sounds like a great existence. They just eat, they eat, they enjoy the arts, they relax. Um, But yeah, I got some Wally vibes of kind of just giving up on your duties as a human being and just, you know, yeah. So then why do some of them work? Like, why does Hellgate work? Why do all the people in his in that room, why do they all have jobs if, they, oh, if nobody needs to work? That's a good point. I guess it's like a skeleton crew running the whole city. Do you think it's a thing where, like, you you don't have to work? You have the option. Like, if you like working, if you like earning a living, because there are people like that, uh, <laughs> I wonder if it's that where, you're like, you're just given a choice and some I guess people that- choose to have a job. That makes sense. And of course, and I'm sure you'll get to this, and I actually have a lot of thoughts about this, the Ugnaughts have to work too. Yeah. They don't get a day off, so. But they, so they strike me as folks where, like, if you told them, like, y'all could just live a life of leisure, I think they would be, they would instantly reject that and be like, no, it's important to us to get our hands dirty and and, I, and produce I, something. I absolutely love the work ethic of the Ugnaughts. That see, well, I, I we're about to get there, but. um, Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. So, so after they, they're introduced to Hellgate and Hellgate says there have been some random, unpredictable malfunctions, you're going to have to go talk to the Ugnaughts. They deal with droid maintenance. I'm just a security guy. 
So they take this turbo lift down into like the lower levels of the city mm-hmm. and meet the Ugnot crew that is working on the droids. And I'm I have strong feelings about this scene, both positive and negative. Mm-hmm. And I want to get I want to get your take, especially on the negative. So, but the, I'll start with the positive. Those Ugnots are awesome. Yeah, like there's this scene where Mando says to them, you know, Ugnots are known as being hard workers or something and and they all look at each other and nod i'm like these guys are awesome like i would love to get a, I would love to get a beer with those ugnots right yeah like, same um i i'm dying to talk to you about this one thing so i love queel i still don't forgive the show at the end of season one for killing off like several of the best characters in the show including mm-hmm. queel ig11 and Werner herzog um yeah uh, like i want I love those three characters and they were just gone. Queel had this very idiosyncratic way of talking where he would end a sentence by saying, I have spoken mm-hmm. in a way that was kind of like definitive. Like there's no more room to discuss this. And I loved it. And Mando was taken aback by it, but it was like, it gave that character a really interesting personality. Mm-hmm. I always assumed it was his own weird quirk. Uh, okay. I never thought that that was a Ugnot specific turn of phrase. Like a cultural so, thing. Right. So when Mando started using it to talk to these random Ugnots and also reference Queel to them as if all Ugnots know each other, I was like, <laughs> what? So that, <laughs> so that, though, that bothered me. Uh, I, what do you think? I think that's, I, I do think that's fair. I think, I think I'm very guilty of um, looking at a lot of like when I when I'm enamored with something, when I'm in love with a show like this, I put on very like rose tinted glasses and I can easily look past something like that. Like it didn't even occur to me that like the how did they know his name? How do they know this one (laughs) guy's? It's a one syllable name. And there's (laughs) how many Ugnots do you think there are across the entire galaxy? Um, yeah, it seemed it it's it it um it it, it requires a bit of suspension of disbelief yeah. that like they know his name immediately as soon as he says it. Um I'm try I'm tr- this is me just playing devil's advocate again. I'm trying to come like reconcile this in a logical way. Maybe it's just maybe they don't know who Queel is specifically, but if he had said, I talked to, you know, I knew um, Leia Organa, they're going to be like, that's not a, that's not even an Ugnot name. Like, who cares who that is? That's, that's not even an Ugnot. Like, an Ugnot wouldn't be named that. But as soon as he says Queel, they're like, huh, okay, this guy has met some Ugnots. We don't, you know, maybe we don't know. Okay, I could buy that. Specifically Queel, but like, he's not just blowing smoke up her ass. He actually knows an Ugnot named Queel, because that's a common Ugnot name. I don't know. Um, and also, like, the way he uses the... He's like, you will answer our questions and help us with our task. I have spoken. Um, it's just, I don't know. I, mean, I think they... he It's it's awesome the way that they play that. Um, Bo coming in hot. Just, oh, yeah, yeah. And he's like, no, 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 I got this. I know how to talk to them. And talks to them the way that Queel did. Um, yeah, it it's a stretch. It's a stretch. I mean, it's it's not the most egregious thing. 
by far. Um, and I do really like those uh, the 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 prosthetics and the makeup. Oh great. yeah, and it's just cool. Another another cool glimpse into a a society we don't spend a lot of time with, right? The Ugnats were just relegated to like an afterthought in Empire Strikes Back, but the mm-hmm. Mandalorian has given them a place to to shine. So that's- yeah, in Empire, they're they're operating the uh, carbonite chamber, right? That yep. Han Solo gets frozen. In. Okay. And they um, throw around three uh, PO's disembodied head, right? Oh uh, yes, they do. <laughs> yep. Um, oh, you know, you know when else I was thinking of that uh, in the in the previous episode. So, um, they yeah, it must be a cultural thing that like saying I have spoken um, is like saying you know, and and it's like saying and may the force be with you or whatever. It's like a a thing like that's important to them and it's significant and it means something. Um, the Ugnaught that's on Gorian Shard's ship, uh, doesn't say anything like that at all. And I was thinking about that, like, well, if it's a, a compulsive thing that they say, cause they're Ugnaughts, why doesn't he talk like that? And I reconciled that easily by thinking like, well, he's subordinate to, uh, the pirate captain. He's not going to say, maybe he said something like that once. And the captain was like, <laughs> you don't talk to me that way. Um, and we don't see him interacting with anybody else on the crew. So maybe he says it all the time, but not to the captain. Yeah. I don't know. Neither here nor there. Um, but I do agree. It's it's a reach. It's definitely yeah. a reach. Um, they So they give them, they tell them basically like, there's nothing wrong with our droids. They're working exactly as they should. Um, and it turns out they are right. Like it's not, it has nothing to do with them like building malfunctioning droids. The droids were corrupted by something. Uh, so they tell him to go to the loading docks. Um, they go to the loading docks, and Bo's like, this is where they see all the B-2 battle droids, the B-2 super droids. Yes. Uh, kind of walking in a line, and they're it's like they're loading, you know, crates of whatever. I don't know. They're they're working. Yeah. And <laughs> Bo is like, do any of them look suspicious? And Tim's like, they all look suspicious. <laughs> Just hate. I mean, he hates B-2 super battle droids in particular because that's what killed his parents. Yeah, he has a very so good reason to hate those guys. Very good reason. Um, Bo also mentions I haven't seen these since the Clone Wars. Uh, that's and, when I had to start doing some mental math. I'm like, at that point, I'm like, how old is Bo-Katan? Right, I, so at least at least 40. Yep. Right? Because I figured it's like around 45. I just, g- guessing she, if she was around, and I haven't met her yet in Clone Wars, but guessing that she's like around like 18 or 20 in Clone Wars, would that make sense? That does make sense. I'm looking and up. Katie, Katie Sackhoff herself, I think, is 43, so it, it adds up. Oh, yeah. Um, the Mandalorian's first two seasons take place in 9 ABY. Is that nine years after the uh, Battle of Endor? Uh, ABY is, is after the Battle of Yavin, right? That's what oh. ABY is. Then... Um, and Endor is four years after Yavin. Okay, yeah, so it's five years after. That's what I assumed. I, I plugged five years after the the destruction of the second Death Star into my calculation. Yeah. Okay, so I think your math is right on that. Yeah, so, uh, but I, yeah, when she's like, when she was referencing the Clone Wars, I'm like, wait a minute. I started like doing the math on my fingers, but it all checks out, yeah. And uh, this is where... <laughs> 
uh, Din is like waving his his hand in front of the sensors on the super droids. Oh yeah, um, and <laughs> the B one is like, ah, you really shouldn't do that. He's like, why not? And he's like, uh, because it's not, you know. I love I love the B one voice. I love how goofy and <laughs> incompetent those droids are. Mm-hmm. If it, I don't care if it's the prequel trilogy, if it's Clone Wars, every time I hear their goofy, nasally voice, I I, I have a big smile on my face. Yeah, they they are uh, something like Captain Bombardier, where they're very Saturday morning cartoon, and yeah. it really rides the line. But they pull, they stick the landing with them. Yeah, like it's just silly and childish enough, but it works. I agree. Um, we don't get a Roger Roger out of any of them in this episode, which I was kind of hoping for, yeah. but probably for the best. Um, <laughs> but, uh, Din escalates to just like pushing them and yes. kicking them. <laughs> Not a very scientific method. <laughs> but it works. Um, and yeah, he, he agitates the wrong, the wrong B2 droid and it smacks him and just starts taking off. And then this turns into... The uh, that scene from Blade Runner when Deckard is chasing down Zora. Did you get that kind of same kind of vibe? I got Blade Runner vibes both here and probably on Coruscant too. I, I think we talked about that episode three. Yeah. yeah. Yes, de- definitely got some the therapy bot. Thank you, thank you for the reminder. Yeah, I definitely yeah. got those vibes in that chase scene. Um, they, I love the way like Bo and Din work together, and they they. Uh, he like tackles it through a window, um, and then Bo comes up behind and like shoots it, and and they kill it. And um, and then <laughs> another droid that we can add to our cage match. These crime scene bots come, <laughs> yes. and they have like hollow tape that they put up everywhere to surround the crime scene. Another, another, as you pointed out earlier, <laughs> droid that has one purpose. <laughs> <laughs> They couldn't build a droid who does like four or five things. No, they built five <laughs> droids to do one thing each. <laughs> Why did you program me to feel pain? <laughs> so they uh, they find on the, the the body of this droid a spark pad, uh, and it has the name of a droid bar on it, the resistor. And okay, I this this episode has some flaws in it, but this is just a slam dunk. This is such a, a awesome world-building detail. I thought everything about this sequence was incredible. When they go into the resistor, um, they walk in. I wrote down like four things that happen in a row. You see how this droid bar works. It's all these droids that are like have like this, this uh, jar of some kind of liquid, and it's hooked up to tubes like in their bodies. And they're like passing them to each other. One of them, there's a droid that like get is getting cut off. Like he's too drunk and he's like throwing his arms up. And there's a couple droids nearby that are like, whoa, dude, oh, no, no, you gotta chill, you gotta <laughs> chill. Um the Din and Bo walk in and there's like a record scratch. The music yes. stops. <laughs> record and it's scratch. like the inverse of the the Moss Eisley Cantina scene where they they walk in with these droids and every, all of the aliens in the bar, like everybody stops what they're doing. And watches them enter. And in this case, it's the humans walking in. And they're the odd man out. And everyone stops and looks at them. Uh, <laughs> Din goes up. Uh, I think this, I think Bo is like, let me do the talking here. And he he's able to contain himself for like five seconds. And then he's just like, 
just tell, tell me, uh, who did you give this to, whatever. And this blue protocol droid steps up and very <laughs> casually tries to walk out. And he's like, nobody leaves. And it just like, eh, and goes and sits back down. Um, and then I I just love this. The, the, the bartender explains that these robots are afraid that they're going to become absolute and be replaced by humans. Yeah. The deliciousness <laughs> of that irony. Yeah, this was a really interesting scene, another expansion of the mythology. I, Star Wars is always, like, they've humanized the droids, right? R2 mm-hmm. and 3PO feel like, and they have artificial intelligence and personality. I mean, R2 is one of the most colorful characters in the whole saga. Yeah, right? he swears. Just, for, just with beeping and buzzing. He lies. Not a lot of, you don't see a lot of droids that are capable of lying, but R2 is one of them. Oh, that's right, because his memory was never wiped after the prequels, right? So he knew everything that was going on and mm-hmm. kept it to himself. Um, the only problem I had with this scene was that it reminded me very much of an early episode of Futurama where Bender goes to like a robot bar and jacks in. Do you remember this? Yes. And so I was watching this and I couldn't help but think of that episode. And so that kind of pulled me. That's my own my own thing but um one thing i loved about this i don't know if you caught this some of the droids in the bar are the droids from the star tours ride at hollywood studios yes and i was like what again filoni and favreau i'm sure pulling the strings behind the scenes like hey wouldn't it be cool if we got one of those like navigation droids from hollywood studios and planted them in there so it, that was that was my like Zeb moment where I'm like, mm-hmm. hey, look, because uh, I was just in Disney last year and, and went on Star Tours because how could you not? Um, so, yeah, so that, it, it was uh, definitely an interesting look at droid life. And if you're going to do this scene, you want to do it on Plazier 15 because it's what 90 percent robots or whatever. Right? Yeah. Were there any other uh, droids like or designs that stood out to you in the in the bar? Got the protocol droid. I'm trying to think. I think it was just the uh, those 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 cute little stout ones from the Star Tours ride. Did you spot any just like like, a gonk droid or anything like that? No, I didn't see a gonk droid. I was also looking for, and there might have been one, and I missed it. A probe droid. I thought that would have been interesting if there was like an imperial probe droid um, or a mouse droid, but I didn't notice any if there were. Oh, mouse droid would have been awesome, right? I I think I noticed a couple of those, like the very common like medical bot. uh, That's a common droid design that we see, and I think I saw a few of those in the bar. Like that blue one that was tending to Luke on Hoth? Yeah, something like yes. that. I, I, I think I have one of the old action figures. That, I think that's 2-1-B, that medical droid. That it's sounds great. Right. It's, um, you know what? I was just thinking, you were talking about the record scratch, and that was very much like, <laughs> everyone turns. <laughs> Wouldn't it be have been, maybe this would have been too much, but if one of the robots was like a record player itself, and it like screeched... <laughs> That would have been the Futurama. That Futurama yeah. would have done that. Yeah. 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 <laughs> um, I also love this, like the when they explain like what is it, what exactly, how, why when you first hear the concept of a droid bar, you're like, okay, come on, bombardier, and then this, like, what are we doing? But then when they explain what it actually is, it's this uh lubricant, this viscous lubricant called Nepenthe. Yep. 
And that name comes from, I think, the Odyssey. Um, it's a uh, mythical uh, drug or plant that the the name literally translates to that which chases away sorrow. And oh, Bartender Droid uh, describes it as a lubricant that a viscous lubricant that delivers program refreshing subparticles. Um, they surmise that there must have been a tainted batch. So he goes through and he like flip, 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 flip through his little like, did, I don't know. I didn't fully understand this, but I just kind of accepted it. That uh, <laughs> they somehow can keep track of who orders which batch. And they determine that uh, the entire tainted batch all went to or all came from the same shipment. Yep. Um, and that it's actually nanodroids. And they take it to this technician that they do the whole like enhance, enlarge, <laughs> yeah. turn it 90 degrees. Um, another thing that actually is like maybe a reference to Blade Runner, because there's a scene like that in Blade Runner where he's analyzing the pictures that he finds in Leon's apartment. Yep. Uh, they find that there is a chain code when they zoom in far enough, like imprinted on the nanodroids. And it's um, they, they're able to trace it back to it originally was owned by the Techno Union, and then it was in cold storage for several decades. Uh, the Techno Union, by the way, they were one of like the separatist factions in the prequels. Um, yeah, I haven't heard that name since I think episode two. So La- that was La- that was odd. Is that the character? It, the, it was he the guy with like the metal mantle and the the like the dial on his chest. Yeah, yeah. I just, I, I just remember him sitting in a room with like a bunch of people in episode two, and he's like, the Techno Union will sign the yeah, treaty yep. and he like adjusts something and his voice changes let me just see real quick if that's his name maybe one day we'll get uh like a a tv show about well i'd love to get a little more about the politics of the separatist movement because clearly as we'll get to it endures the philosophy endures with some people mm-hmm. Um, okay, so Lot Dodd was the Nemoidian, or one of the Nemoidians. Uh, we won't go into that. Um, Watt Tambor. Was the, That's right. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> uh, all right. Sorry about that. Um, so then, yeah. So then the tech uh, says, "Well, these didn't these didn't arrive through droid acquisitions, which is, I guess, the planet side, the Plazir Fifteen organization that would normally." I guess, order these types of parts. Um, It was requisitioned by our security office, by the head of security himself. Who could that be? Commissioner (laughs) Hellgate with that name? No, he couldn't have been a baddie. Um, And yep, so they they go and they confront him. Uh, They tell him that you programmed the droids to disrupt and attack people. And he's like, You'll never take me alive. And he stands up and he puts, <laughs> puts his hand over the big red button. And he's like, hi, I lied earlier. It won't shut them down. It will convert them back to their battle droid programming. And he threatens to hit the button. Um, and then what? I think Bo like shocks him, right? She shoots yeah. like a taser at him. With like a kind of Black Widow-esque oh, yeah. taser type thing. Yeah. That's a good that's a good an- analogy there. Um then yeah, oh, that, <laughs> this this had to be another meta moment. As soon as, as soon as she, like, she shoots the Black Widow thing at him, he tases him, he seizes up, and then she just turns to Din and goes, politics. <laughs> Do you feel, I feel like that was a reference to, like, 
maybe like a cheeky reference to like the criticism of the prequel movies that people were like, oh, you know, we don't like Star Wars to get all into the political stuff. And we just want to see lightsabers and blasters and X-Wings. That's possible. I mean, I remember... I remember a lot of people checking out in the opening crawl of the Phantom Menace because it was like talking about the taxation of trade routes. It's yeah. Like, what the hell? So, yeah, maybe you're right on that. <laughs> uh, we just want badasses in armor tasing people. Yeah. Um, so then we see them playing like Space Beetle, Croquet, and uh, Lizzo is teaming up with Grogu to cheat yeah. at it. He's using the force. I just love how, how much... Uh, Grogu casually because he he didn't really complete his um his his restrictive Jedi training he didn't he never internalized that like you can't just use the force frivolously he'll use it to spin a chair he'll use it <laughs> to cheat at space croquet um and I, I don't know I love that for some reason uh they tell they tell Lizzo what's going on. Oh, we found, you know, Hellgate was doing this and he's actually a separatist. Um, he <laughs> says something about like Count Dooku was a visionary and the separatists were the victims in this war, and which objectively speaking, he's not wrong. They were like, they were just trying to, trying to make things fair for themselves. And they just got, they were just pawns in Sheev Palpatine's, um, grand plan yeah uh count dooku especially uh hellgate kind of got off easy there don't you think well um, how do you mean well because he threatened the whole stability of the planet probably there were probably some collateral damage but i think he was just kind of marooned or exiled to a the uh the paraquat the moon of paraquat I don't know, maybe exile like is more harsh than it sounds, but I think all things considered, you know, if it's kind of a Napoleon kind of exile thing where he's just not invited back, mm-hmm. it's not not that harsh of a penalty, I guess. So like what would have been a more appropriate um comeuppance? Prison or I guess prison or even worse, maybe like the death penalty or something, but I don't I guess on a democracy that's probably frowned upon. They also, they, they didn't really say for sure one way or another, but I don't think any of the droids um, killed anybody. Uh, they, okay. they mentioned specifically like traffic accidents and heavy equipment failure leading to injuries. And then like the, the last thing they say is like assault. Um, but they don't say murder. They don't say that they actually killed anybody. I think it's implied that that like chef bot is slicing, was, slicing yeah. people up. <laughs> they they cut away strategically right when it malfunctions, and you heard a Shabala screaming. So, mm-hmm. yeah. But you, I guess technically you're right. I guess if there were no fatalities, taking his life would be kind of an asymmetrical response. So, I yeah. wonder if do you think they're planning to bring him back? I wonder. I don't. Know. I don't think that's the case. But. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I do, I do, I do kind of agree, like exile on a, on a nearby moon, uh, unless Paraquat is like, unless by exile, it's implied, like it's a prison planet and whatever, but I don't know. Um, I do like that he, that, uh, Jack Black says, um, when he finds out the truth, what's going on, he's like, that's despicable. And, and, and (laughs) Hellgate says, if that isn't the Quacta calling the stifling slimy. (laughs) Yeah. One of those, um. Um, 
it's interesting. Sometimes Star Wars will just totally adopt like a an Earth phrase. Like there's a scene in episode one when the Naboo freighter is leaving Naboo trying to break the blockade and the captain says something like, we're going to be sitting ducks, which is like, but here, like if that was transported to this episode, it would be like, we're sitting blargs or something. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Uh, So it's interesting how sometimes they have their own Star Wars isms and sometimes they just import wholesale what we already said. True. Uh, Lizzo offers them the key to Plazir, this large, <laughs> oversized, ornate key. Um, and she she knights Grogu and uh, inducts him into the ancient order of uh, the knights of the ancient order of independent regencies. So that that was a cool moment seeing uh, Grogu get knighted. Just like that's the kind of fun stuff we're here for. Yeah, yeah. Um, so then Bo is like, all right, well, that job's done. Now we can uh, now we can go reclaim my fleet. And she goes to where all of the stolen ships are, and Axe is just chilling with everybody. Um, and, and he's like, I think you mean my fleet. And <laughs> she's like, oh, yeah, do you want to challenge me? He's like, yeah, I want to challenge you. And then they fight. <laughs> uh, they have a really cool fight, which she definitely easily wins. Um, well, maybe not easily, but she wins definitively. Um, yeah, and Axe is all butthurt and he's like, well, <laughs> you may, 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 but you don't have the dark saber. So blah, blah, blah. And, uh, she kind of gives like a whole speech about that. And then Din is like, all right. Um, by the law of transitive properties, <laughs> <laughs> I was, I was captured, therefore defeated. Bo defeated my captor. Therefore, she defeated the enemy that defeated me. Doesn't that make her the rightful owner of the Darksaber? And every single one of those Mandalorians is just like, oh, yeah, no, that's that's definitely a, a technicality. That's on the books. Like, yeah, no, she did it. <laughs> what do you think? I, w- I was okay with that. Yeah. Um, I, I was okay with the resolution. I wasn't okay with... I remember thinking this when I first watched episode two. Mm-hmm. Right. That's when this whole thing goes down with the Dianoga, which I think we're just, it's canon now. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and there's a scene where, oh, they're at the campfire and she's making the pog soup and he's like putting his gear back on and he picks up the dark saber and like puts it on his belt. And I'm like, ah, ah, what are you doing? Did like at that moment, he should have been, he should have handed it back. Yes. So I get, I get for the drama of the scene. It had to be at the end of this episode, but I was kind of like, Din, that's not yours anymore. Like, um, yeah. So, so I, it was long overdue and I'm okay with the transitive property. Although yeah, no one had to really think about it. There's like, yeah, that's about right. Um, (laughs) (laughs) It's also, the show has has taken great care of like, every time Din uses the, the dark saber, he's not good at it. Like he wields it. And he like it's a, he's effective with it, but yeah, he it's like super heavy for him. And they they explain why I think in that episode of Boba Fett. Um, but but every time we see, uh, every time that we've seen Bo with it, she just handles it like a like a like a chef's knife. Like she's yeah, it's very like part extension of her body. It's yeah yeah. Um, and so yeah, he hands it to her. Um, she ignites it. Schwing. 
and <laughs> everyone's like, you're our leader. Yay. Um, is there anything else from this episode that we missed? Or anything else you want to say before we get into lose big three? Again, really good acting from Sackhoff, especially in that last scene. Um, that fight was super good. Although, I don't know, it was felt like with a fight of such importance and and ramifications, it would have been nice for everyone to get like a good night's sleep or a meal before they fight. Like, mm-hmm. like a- Axe was like, actually, maybe he was eating in the moment and they just walk up and start the fight. But I get, I get with the, the momentum and the pacing of the episode. Um, but the fight itself, all the gadgets came out, all the maneuvers, the jetpack, the flamethrower, the shield, the grappling hook. Mm-hmm. Um, that first move that Bo makes where she, she jumps over the rocket and like comes in feet first. Mm. Super awesome. Yeah. yeah. So I enjoyed oh, that a lot. Axe gets a good move where he like runs at her to start like tackle her and just ignites his jetpack at the right moment. So he like, you know, oh, yeah, breaks like through a defense. Her a, like to a, a ship. To a ship. Yeah. That's good stuff. <laughs> um, it was a good fight. Yeah. Um, all right. Are you ready for lose big three? As ready as I'll ever be. Okay. Uh, lose big three. Oh, wait, first, Ryan. Actually, wait, this time we we brought in a uh, special guest singer, Cy Snoodles. So Cy Snoodles hit the theme. Oh, lose big three with you and me. It's Luigi with the big old three. Thank you so much. All right. We're ready for lose big three. Lose big three. Number one. Uh, in the in the foundling, when they're all sitting by the campfire, and one of the Mandalorians comes over and like hands everybody their little tin of food. Um, I, I kind of asked this earlier: Why do they have a campfire if they're trying not to be detected by something high up above them? One problem with that is the fire <laughs> itself; it's bright, uh, and the smoke coming out of it. Now it knows where they are, um, but. What do they need the fire for? I guess the only thing would be maybe on that planet at nighttime, it's kind of like the desert. The the temperature drops so far that without the fire, they wouldn't be able to sleep or wouldn't be able to survive the night. Like that's the only, and they're not cooking any food. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. That's, that was like a possibility that I wrote down and immediately crossed out. I'm like, they're not using a fire to cook their food. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, I kind of, in my mind, they were eating that, you know, that, that food that uh, Luke is eating on Dagobah, like yeah. uh, the little the protein, tin. like protein thing. Yeah. That's what I pictured them eating. So yeah, it's a liability for their stealth mission. They're not cooking anything. So the only thing that would make, and they're not talking around it. So the only thing I guess would be the warmth was required for survival. May I remind you um, that these suits can they can fly into space with them so i i always assume the suit insulates you from the cold somehow yeah (laughs) that's a really good point so then (laughs) yeah i i got nothing (laughs) (laughs) i do i genuinely think it comes down to what you were saying earlier like it's the campfire it's it's a great visual it's like they're all coming together around you know around this common purpose and like just the symbol of it. But when you break it down, it's not only, it not only doesn't make sense, it's detrimental to what they're trying to do. <laughs> yep. Um, okay. Lose big three, number two. Um, do you think, uh, do you think Vane 
will return and in what capacity would he return? I think, yes, he got a bit in two different episodes and we see him escape, you know, kind of, you know, every time a character like escapes by the skin of their teeth, like they have to come back. So I would expect maybe in like the middle part of next season where he'll be, I don't know, running a smuggling operation or something that the Mandos run afoul of. And, and maybe, maybe he has to, maybe he's like the enemy of the, the enemy of my enemy is my friend kind of thing. Ooh, okay. Where they, where he's not a good guy, but they need his access to take down a local warlord or something like that. Okay. Okay. Um, all right. So lose big three, number three. Uh, this was the, so this was the thing in, in the, um, guns for hire episode that was really distracting to me. The, when they, when they're approaching the planet and that pleasant voice comes over Bo's ship and is like, Hey, congratulations. I'm taking over the controls of your ship. The automated guided guidance system will bring you in. Is that automated guidance system world breaking tech? Do you know what I mean by like world breaking yeah, like if it if this existed, couldn't like why aren't they using that in every dogfight? Right, yeah. um, like hacking into everything. Yeah, I I don't think we. I remember seeing that. I'm like, is there a precedent for this in the Star Wars universe? There's plenty of tractor beams. Every episode of everything has a yeah. tractor beam, but that's an external force pulling another ship in. Right, being able to tap into a ship, especially a ship that like Bose must be off the grid, right? Just like the yep. Razor Crest was. Yeah, that's a and and Plasier fifteen is not like the the most advanced society in the world. So I I totally agree. I I, I was watching that. I'm like, have we ever seen this before in Star Wars? And I don't think we have. I don't think so. I don't think so. Even on Cloud City, remember when they uh, the Falcon is approaching? They have those two cute twin like twin cab ships come on yeah. the sides, and they're and they're like, we're going to steer you towards where you need to go, and we'll even take a pot shot at you to show you me business. But mm-hmm. they no one did any hacking. It was physical pushing them toward the landing platform. As if those two ships could have taken down the film. I know. That's yeah. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> um, not with not with not with uh, the Chewbacca behind the controls. Um, awesome. So those are lose big three. I have two. I I like came up with two other. Uh, side questions but they weren't so much side questions so much as um one was a thought a random thought that i had which is that bo katan if you break down her name it's like half of the ninja turtles weapons a bow and a katana um so i was thinking like she could have another sister besides the teen crease that shows up named Sai nunchucks <laughs> just to complete the picture i love um, it <laughs> and this one i'll throw your way uh what is what if if there was a um a spin-off of the Mandalorian, uh which of these titles or do you have an alternate title would be best? Um the Pandalorian, <laughs> uh where they all uh instead of pog soup, they all eat bamboo shoots. The Frandalorian, where a down on her luck uh nanny gets hired by <laughs> the rich Mr. Sheffield. See what you did there. <laughs> uh but she refuses to take off her helmet and uh, or the Ed McMandalorian. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, 
I love all of those. I I don't I I love whatever thought process took you to that place. <laughs> um, I'll add to that maybe the Grand Delorean, uh-huh. and that might be about like a, <laughs> a, a nursing home on Mandalore where Mandalorians past their prime share war stories. Oh, and instead of the armor, it's like the knitting. Like she has like a <laughs> knitting needle instead of a forge. Yes. <laughs> I made you a scarf. Uh, Awesome. That is, I think, everything we've got for The Mandalorian Season 3, Episodes 4 through 6. When we come back next Tong's Day, we will be talking about the two-part finale, uh, The Spies, and what's the final episode called? The Return? Actually, I'm blanking on that. That sounds right, though. I know the spies for sure, because I have so many thoughts about the spies. But um, yeah, a really rousing two-part finale where where the earlier episodes were a little uh, spotty in their framework, their conception, but it all kind of pays off in the end. Yeah. Um, so checking, checking before we wrap up, checking back in with our cage match. I'm going to throw um, both sides at you again. Uh, so on the droid side, we've got the Dianoga, of course. We've got uh, IG or half half of IG. Um, less than <laughs> less than that after the protocol droid, the copper droid got him. We have the copper droid though. Uh, we got R5. We've got R7. R7 is going to join the droid side. The therapy bot. Uh, the two little robots that carried um, Grief Karga's cape. Yep. We have the crime scene bots. <laughs> <laughs> but now we also have a whole bunch of B1 and B2 battle droids. So that, I think, tips the scales in a big way. On the other side, we have the dinosaur turtle. We have the mythosaur. Uh, we have the ice walrus from, from the pilot. And then, Evan, do you count Trandoshans as space dinosaurs? They are reptilian. I mean, if if we we counted that back in the podcast for um, Battle Beyond the Stars, uh, Cayman was was mm. very similar to a Trandoshan. We kind of counted him, so I'd say yes. Okay. So, so does. So do you still think the dinosaurs are running away with this, or does the addition of the um, small army of battle droids tip the scales? The real issue here is the mythosaur, because I think an an army of battle droids could probably take out the raptor and the dino... the dino gator. What are we calling it again? Dinosaur turtle, according to Wikipedia. Dinosaur (laughs) turtle. Right, they're not that big. Uh, the super battle droids, especially, can do a lot of damage, as we saw. Mm-hmm. But the mythosaur, I guess, we don't really know exactly how big it is. But if it's as big as I think it is, all it would have to do is just do a belly flop and just like crush uh, the majority of those battle droids. So, if it's the same scale as it is in the um, the holiday special, if yeah. it's if it's that large, yeah, and that's, that's <laughs> that that that's over before it starts. But as we, I mentioned offline, I think there's a very good chance the mythosaur, being kind of an independent-minded creature, 
and not interested in the, the affairs of dinosaurs and robots might just wander off and leave the other <laughs> dinosaurs to fight the battle. And okay. if that was the case, it might be a draw at the moment. Okay. Okay. All right. We'll have to check. We'll have to see if we get any new uh, robots or, or space dinosaurs in the next two episodes. We definitely get one big one. Um, so we'll have to check back in after that. Uh, all right, so this is our ongoing coverage of The Mandalorian Season 3. Thank you so much for tuning in once again. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to Robots vs. Dinosaurs on whatever podcast app you're listening to. And if you want to write in your fan mail or your hate mail, uh, write into robosvdinos at gmail.com or find us on Instagram and other places. And you know what to do. It's the internet. I don't have to tell you how to find us. <laughs> you found this podcast, so... <laughs> So you're you're already doing everything right. Um, awesome. So Evan, anything anything to say before we uh, say goodbye? I'll just say one last thing. Uh, this was a blast, as was the last time. I'm super excited about covering the last two episodes of the season. I have spoken. Well said. Uh, all right, and as 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 we always say here on Robots vs Dinosaurs, one does not speak unless one knows. Can't do a recording. Happy Star Wars Day. You may, but you don't have the dark saber, so blah, blah, blah. There's always a bigger fish. He's my son. Yes. Uh, it's too bad. I thought Navarro was going to make it. Lerman. Lerman. Tongs days, am I right? Protocol droid for the win. I'll go put on the kettle. I was going to make espresso. Oh, you're leaving? Oh, oh okay. <laughs>